Well, they say sequels sometimes aren't as good as the original, but I have a feeling this sequel will be because I'm 95 episodes into Inappropriate Earl, and by far and away, the first episode I did with Tommy Morris was the most talked about one I've ever done. Every comic in the city, their first question was, when's part two? Well, you don't have to wait anymore because part two is right now. <laughs> Put your hands together for Tommy Morris. Yeah. <laughs> Earl. Thanks for having me back, Earl. Well, I think people, uh, for whatever reason, thought I was just going to have you on to say, uh, you know, air my grievances with you. and know uh, you're this, you're that. And uh, I think they were all surprised at how well we got along. Well, that's not. You're a comedian. You're the real thing. You're brilliant. You're funny. I have a tendency to get along with those type of comics. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's one thing I, I learned from my mother that anybody that's going to get up in front of a group of people in any sort of capacity, it goes right down the middle. Half like you, half don't. Half get you, half don't. So I already knew there'd be negative stuff. I've just been really liking, for me this week to be able to get the kind of feedback that people are enjoying hearing what it is that I'm saying. Um, a lot of, a lot of new comics never, you know, never knew me and stuff like that for them to come to me and go, wow, I really heard this and I heard that. And to hear you talk, you sound like I've heard a couple people talk about you. I'm like, listen, that's, I just had to work in truths. It was what, kind of what I was telling you, Earl, is that once Mitzi pointed me in the direction of being talent coordinator, she's like, she was basically saying to me too, she goes, look, if you're going to do my work, you can't be Mr. Friendly with everybody all the time. She goes, you got to pull back and only comment where it's, it's necessary. So in a way, the job isolated me a little bit, which it can. And I don't know if Adam feels that sometimes, but it can be isolating. You know what I mean? I think Adam does. And, you know, it's like we talked about the... First time you were here, I mean, it's the toughest job in the world. You've got every comic in the literally country it's coming fun. here. It's just, it's a fun ride. The store is all about fun. I always said, when Mitzi identified in me that she wanted me to be a comedian, she was also pointing out that I have the soul and the energy of a performer, which is what I do. What I decided to do with myself outside of taking Mitzi's wisdom was to literally take the energy that comes out of my body as a performer and put it into the floor and the walls of the store to build just a fun energy. Not that it wasn't already fun. It just, it had a little bit of a dark energy when I got there. And that's kind of what I did. That's why it was a gradual thing. And I talked to Mitzi about all this stuff once we became friends in 2002. And she liked it all because it's, it's honest, but it's slightly mystical like her. You see what I mean? It's not normal logical conversation it's talking about the magic of life and and things like that and that's one of the things too that i i want to convey to anybody that thinks of my time at the store as i was trying to heal its creative energy it was my overall goal and i remember in about 2009 a few years before mitzi started coming in a lot i just went over to her she was in the booth beginning of a saturday night main room show said hello to her and she looked at me and she goes it feels so good in here. You've done a very good job, Cookie Jar. And I was like, I didn't say anything because at that moment she was recognizing what it is that I was really doing there. 
which was healing the place to have creative energy that goes on, which it still has now. That's why I try to act like I don't feel like a, when I was there, it was this and now it's this. It was a mission. It was like 13 years. And Eric is a cool guy, okay? People don't all know that, but he's been an actor and he's done stuff. So even though he's parental, he's still a cool guy. He can laugh and he's got a slightly sarcastic sense of humor. I, I like him. And Adam is, uh, he's industry savvy. That's the best thing I can say about him. He's has that about him. He knows how to talk to comics. He was, re he was referred to the store by comics. He was embraced by them immediately. He get so he, he has a sense, he has a high functioning sense of humor. He doesn't show it to everyone all the time, but he's funny. So I think he fits really well. But then we go back to what the podcast seemed to lead into, which was this experience I had with Mitzi Shore, talking to her, listening to her, it, having me come up with ways to um, dissect what it is she says in these artistic, poetic statements into logical things. And her just being like, that's it, that's it. I mean, how many times did I hear her say, oh my God, you get it. You fucking get it. That's great. That's what Dice made me feel good about. Early on, 2005. Hey, this is Tommy. He gets it. Because when you first came to the store, comedy in general, and I'm sure you could say this about the comedy store, was kind of in a dark area. You know, the comedy was in an in-between area, stand-up. Hold on a second here. I mean, you had the boom, and then, you know... You had the boom, but you're still coming off the boom. Now, I, a lot of people, oh, yeah, like I hear Mac Lindsay right now. Yeah, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not from Jacksonville, Florida, but I lived there a long time. And um, I worked at a club. <laughs> There's people, I just hear the people laughing at the mock out right now. T-Birds, yes. Wow. T-Birds was there a long time. <laughs> 15 years. I got so much fun there. I could tell stories about that, you know, booking Cheap Trick with its original members there and the Little River Band. And, and uh, do you know what I mean? It's just some really great experiences there. But um, I was located for a long time next to a punchline. That's what I'm coming up to say. Punchline. And it was, I'm there. So I work at T-Birds from 86 uh, to 94 in that location. I think that's the golden time. I saw Jerry Seinfeld, that punchline. Saw Ray Romano and Brad Garrett a bunch of times at that punchline. And um, I had lots of celebrities that came that weren't that big, you know, uh, back then. And they became bigger later. But I saw, my point is, the comedy boom come to a close. There's still a comedy zone in Jacksonville now, which I know Pauly does. And several other comics do. And it, it does okay because they're luckily they're the, like the only one in town. They're in the but, Ramada. Yeah, they're in the Ramada, right. But the punchline there just it went away. So I know, knew coming out here that there had not been a recovery in comedy clubs yet as even as of 2001. And comedy was uh, a little bit jumbled. I guess that's what it, it was. It's just as I watched and worked with her and saw her put together her last great class. Now, mind you, I show up there. In 2001, Mitzi's already passed Ahmed Ahmed, Maz Jabrani, Aaron Cater, right? Uh, just passing John Caparula, already passed Sebastian. Um, was working Sergio Love out a lot then. Brian Holtzman, of course, legacy, you know. Amazing. Uh, well, amazing, but also too controversial with audiences. She puts him five nights a week at 1130, and I'm watching from the perspective of a show and people wanting to go on after him. Hey, maybe you're scheduled after him, Earl. But here comes Brian every night at 11.30 to walk over half the audience three times a week. And then the other two or three times a week, brilliant. But it's risky. 
But that's the thing with Mitzi is that she's willing to take that risk with the audience for the artist to get better. Do you know what I mean? Like she wants money and she wants her, That's why the two drink minimum and all that stuff. But if the audience doesn't like what she's giving them and this person she feels needs that experience, well, that's the audience's tough luck. But were you, uh, and this goes along with the part of the job, did you have comics say, hey, I don't want to follow Brian Holtzman? And not just him, but I don't want to follow uh, well, John Caparulo. Keep in mind, 2001 to 2005, February, was when I became like the talent coordinator guy there. During that time, I mean, I helped and stuff, and I was driving around with Mitzi, and I was talking to her, and she, we were spending time together. But I got to watch what Duncan had to deal with trying to do that stuff. And what it still was at that time, keep in mind, is that Mitzi's coming in, sitting in the booth, sitting in the little room down at the bottom of the stairs, the intersection, as she calls it, and um, or doing it on the phone with Duncan. But she is doing the lineups with Duncan. So you take what Mitzi Shore get, gives you. That's what the talent coordinator was before. Even with Corey, who you and I were discussing in a conversation we had. Freddie Soto's wife. Freddie Soto's wife. Corey and Duncan, yes, they were the talent coordinators. And Corey was like a girlfriend to Mitzi. Mitzi's last period of time where she could still walk around and drive. And Corey spent that time with her. And she was the talent coordinator, but they were girlfriends. And they dressed up and they went to La Jolla. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They had fun. And Mitzi enjoyed that. Um, and then when Corey wasn't doing it, then Duncan. And I didn't hear anything ill about Corey leaving. It says Corey's leaving. You know, she's married Freddie Soto, and here comes in Duncan. And I don't know how Duncan actually talked. He, I knew he was a phone guy, this and that, but I know he's very intelligent, and I know he's got a you know a high level functioning sense of humor. And Mitzi dug that kind of clever stuff, so she probably loved, loved his mind. And he, Duncan, really knows, knows how to talk to women. I'm sure he already knows that. But his mother used to call a lot. His dad used to call a lot. I talked to Duncan's mother on the phone. She's really cool. And uh, he knew how to talk to Mitzi. So he did a good job for her, but he still was taking her orders. What is significant about me coming in at that time in 2005 is I end up become the talent coordinator in the succession of Mitzi Shore's career where she's going to begin to run out of steam. And she's not maybe going to be able to do the things that are necessary to a full function. And that's where I think the, the perfect intersection of Mitzi and I are, is because instead of me being an agenda-oriented person or a person who wants to make decisions to defy the wisdom I'm seeing being put out, I took Mitzi in and idolized her in a way and extracted from her these brilliant ideas she has and not only how to make a show work, but giving people challenges in comedic development. The OR shows were set up, and I don't look at the lineups now weekly. I don't know if they're exactly set up the same, but they were set up, as she used to say, scientifically. Now, she didn't explain herself when she said she was, they were scientific, I just took in from being around her for a while that what she meant by the science of it was, why is this person going to go now? Why am I going to have Kirk Fox have to go up after Rick Ingram every week for months till, Rick Ing till Kirk Fox doesn't want to do it anymore, but has become so damn good at handling it, he's that much stronger. And then after she does that to him, then she suddenly puts him up at 930 and Kirk was a monster at 9.30 because she had made him tough at 11.45. Do 
smart stuff I'm watching. Jesus put it out. If someone, if I don't mean this the wrong way, but if a comedian's just doing it and working through it, they just know what they didn't get, which I expect them to be that way because comedians are working on their career. When a person like me who's decided not to be a stand-up as an entertainer is looking at this stuff, I just feel like I'm going like, Lay's a genius. Lady's a genius. And I talked to her that way, Earl. She may have had people go, I love you, Mitzi. Thank you. Nobody talked to Mitzi the way I did. I told her she was beautiful. That she's brilliant. That I was honored to know her and work for her. And she, I didn't do it all the time either. She doesn't like a con, like a, a thing. I would say it when the moment was exactly right. And it was important, I felt, to uplift her spirit. This is what she knows of she and I, is I knew she already was uh, confident, self-secure, but I wanted to make sure as she was coming into this final phase of her life right now that she knew that she had done something that made a difference. I remember telling her one time, I go, God, Mitzi, you made a difference. You changed everything. And she starts getting emotional. And she goes, I wanted to do it. I said, it's unbelievable. I said, you're like a, you're like a tree with all these branches that touch so many lives. Oh God, that's beautiful. I'm not trying to make this just serious. I know that this is all, but this is the beauty of Mitzi was not just a funny person like that deep, deep as people go. She is this thing I call the great individual. I've met two. My mother's father had a sixth grade education and rose to be a high functioning person in United Merchants Rio de Janeiro. How did he pull that off the sixth grade education? Because there was no other human like him on the planet. I never thought I'd meet another one. And then I met Mitzi Shore. And I said in the last podcast that I told her after she was like, tell me about a comic. I go, I'm getting interested in you. I never met anyone like you. She's like, you know, nor will you ever again. And she didn't mean it in any way other than like going like, it's almost sad that you, <laughs> you won't, you know? Well, I mean, she was probably the most at a certain time, the most powerful person in comedy. And August Hamilton says between 1976 and 1986, Mitzi was one of the most powerful women in Hollywood. But I mean, to be a that's woman. The, that's the truth. To be a woman, especially in a male-dominated it's a, it's a business. It's a beautiful coincidence. I mean, Sammy and Mitzi opened it up together, and then Mitzi ended up taking it over. And that's a story. You know, people can look up online. They read about that. But they got divorced, and Mitzi won the club. But it was a beautiful coincidence of a person who's an artist, like Mitzi Shore, being an owner of a comedy club. Now, that one, I don't know, is going to go on forever. You know, that's the reason I'm saying the comedy store runs very much like a business right now and an efficient business, which is the way it probably always should have run in a way. But because she's an artist, that's why she let it run in a way, too, that seemed like it had a gray area. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But when you and Dean uh, were there, it was a good twosome, uh, more uh, laid back. Well, Dean's cool. And I'm, because of all my experience in nightclubs, I don't like everybody getting upset and creating drama out of things that aren't necessary. So I try to nip that stuff in the bud. You know, I know there's always serious issues that have to be dealt with and stuff like that, but I don't like alarmists. People are coming out to establishments and drinking alcohol. You're living in a gray area. 
You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. So I just like that it's that way. And I do not, I, I know we sometimes you have to show force of control, but I like people having a feeling that it isn't that way. That makes it feel like it's more sophisticated. That's all I can say. I mean, you want to have, you know what I mean? Like, like, like you're secure. It, it feels sophisticated if there is not a show of force. So I was always moving towards it feeling inviting, like a sophisticated comedy club. Right. And because of the location and its reputation, it does garner people 21 to 38 is the main core that, you know, I like to call them people that got their act together. You know, they can function. <laughs> they can go their job down, their place, try to work this city for whatever they want to. So I also like to point out always, too, that the comedy store is very good for comics working out on intelligent crowds and the diversity of the people from ages to ethnicities to different countries makes it so that while you're working out on your work, you're not working on a certain type of people from a certain area and a certain mentality. You're working on core human work. So when you guys get reactions to your stuff, you're getting human beings reacting to human ideas. You know? Oh, I mean, it's definitely forced me the to... Best you know do jokes to an australian tours to uh -huh. and that stuff is there and that's why the place is the artistic center of the comedy universe the comedy store is in los angeles oh it's the greatest Period. club i mean there's a lot of great clubs in new york but i venture to wonder how deep their their uh caring of how each individual is doing you know it, it, you schedule based on what you need to have happen not always based on uh just love of sitting in a temple, right? <laughs> you know, which is what it is. So like when Corey and then Duncan, you know, you, they picked lineups under the uh, hand of Mitzi. When were you able to go, I'm going to put this guy here, this girl here on your own? Well, first thing I, I, I was doing the lineups with her and there's a lot of yelling uh, at me. There's a couple of times where she said I was stupid. I didn't understand what she was trying to say. She wanted Dean to do the lineups with her. But I always kept coming back, <laughs> going like, Mitzi, I really think I'm supposed to do this with you, and I'm very sorry. She goes, well, you got to learn how to fucking listen to me. Okay, I'm not here to explain my mind to you. It's up to you to fucking figure it out. So when I say things, you understand what I'm saying. Don't give me this suggestion crap. I don't like it. I said, all right, fine. So I learned how to do them with her. And I, I did a thing where I would write them out and then I would show them to her. And she'd put her glasses on and look at it. And then she'd be like, okay, is this what I gave you? I said, fine. And I honored it that way. And that was for like a while. The first venture I made into was how do we take Joe Rogan's Friday and Saturday nights in the OR and make them even better by scheduling better comics before and after him? He used to say a lot of times at the end of his set, you know, well, some of the comedians that are coming up are really good and some of them are really bad. And, hey, he's being really honest. Um, but I just wanted to see if there was a way to make it so that he didn't want to have to say that. Right. Uh, and so that's when I did little things, which people that I think are still do sets with him now, like Ari Shafir. I remember I put Ari suddenly before him. I went Ari to Joe. And boy, did that fit. And I noticed that. Already worked on the road with Joe for a while. It's not that they wouldn't have thought of it together. They would have. I'm not trying to take that kind of a thing. I'm saying, but I was putting that in the middle of OR shows. And then Brett Ernst going after Joe Rogan. It made Brett a lot stronger. 
just starting to put comics who are a little stronger around them. But how do you think it made, like, what did you look for? Like, Joe's a very, uh, you know, high energy, aggressive. Yeah, you want to you build up to it. I actually I remember putting John Caparulo before him a lot because John works in a way, but he talks like this and that, and then Joe launched right up after it. But what goes into, what did you want to put after Joe? Like a high energy guy or? Sometimes you can try to have someone do that or someone's going to reset the room. I believe in resetting. You have to reset the room after a certain amount of time anyway. These are things that Adam knows because he looked at my lineups and I looked at Mitzi's. You know, you want to talk an OR show? Let's talk an OR show. Goes nine to one o'clock. Who's going to open, right? It's usually someone either coming along or someone who's good at it or someone who needs the exercise of it. What is an opening set in an OR show or a show? It's an exercise in connection. That's why Mitzi puts you there. Ask a meta med. Mitzi put him at the beginning of the shows for over a year so he would know how to talk to people on top of his material, which he learned, and he is very relatable. It's the truth. He's very casual and relatable. Second, who goes at 915? Well, obviously, Argus is a legacy. Argus is a great legacy, and he's very important because he represents all that the store has been as well as what it is at the moment. He's a doorway to that in any conversation at any given moment. He's been loyal to Mitzi. He's been loyal to the store. Mitzi has always envisioned him being the person that's going to write anything about the comedy store. That's why I say to you, whatever I want to put together, it's just going to be about Mitzi and me and talking about comedy, not about the history of the comedy store. Everything. Argus Hamilton knows more than anybody. Anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? He knows everything. And he also knows Mitzi's psyche and who she is. Um, I do still say, though, that there are things that Mitzi and I talked about, and in a way we talked about it, that she did not talk with him. So I've had a little bit of a separate thing. And we talked about the craft of comedic development. But don't forget, he and Louis Anderson sat next to Mitzi a lot during her formidable years. That's why they both feel they can talk to a comic about what's going on with him. And I tell you what, they know what they're talking about, and you should listen to them. Because they are who they are, but they also sat with Mitzi, not once, not twice, you know, years and years, friends, watching comedians. And so that's, they're people that have absorbed a little bit what's going on with her too. So I think Argus is very important. He just, oh, he's, if I were going to go to the comedy store as a person, I had been there in 10 years and I saw Argus Hamilton there, I would feel that much better. Oh, he's a legend. I would be like, it's great. And then also too, two people organically, I've always felt, give the best introductions at the store without trying. And that's Argus Hamilton and Bobby Lee. They just organically give the best introductions that make you very excited to see who you're going to see. And then because he usually, they, both of them have usually good people coming on after them, they set them up and they deliver. Uh, third is a clever spot. So I saw Mitzi uh, put Al Magical there. That was the first person I saw her use the 930 spot as an exercise for. And sometimes she gave Al a half an hour between 930 and 10, right from the beginning. This is not just showing you that Al's good, which we know he is, but that she believed that she had to take something she thought was good and give it the opportunity to get better. That's the OR now. That's why it says on the big sign behind the comedy store, main room, workout room, belly room. So the original room is a show, and we as customers are going in, but there's also some science going on of development there. And she put Kirk Fox there and... And she's, you know, if he's, a, and then also too, as anybody that's gone there has seen when somebody really big wants to work out, they want to go in after Argus, Sarah Silverman, Martin Lawrence, you know what I'm talking right. about? David Spade, I'm sure, Rob Schneider, if they're there, Argus, this is 930, perfect spot. 
945, it maintains to be Bobby Lee a lot. I put Brent Moore in there a few times when Bobby was out of town and he delivered because he's charismatic and has energy and stuff. But 945 spot, Mitzi, to quote her, she said, is there to wake up the show. Got to wake up the show. We got to get it going now. So that's it. And then 10 o'clock is like somebody who's really punching it. Bill Burr, Sebastian. Delia. You know talking about? Delia, I, always, I still like at 1015. I like John Caprula and Delia both at 1015. 10.15 is like you go like this and then you, f- you slide down just a team at 10.15 for a headliner or somebody who really got something going on to freaking level the place, man. <laughs> level it. And then the 10.30 person comes on and goes, all right, I know you still got some more energy in there. I'm going to take it and go. So that's a pass the football spot, 1030. Like who, who would be an example of something? Well, I like, you know, I like going John Caparula to Chris D'Elia because John, almost like Joe Rogan, he goes, hey, 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 hey. And the next guy goes like, boom. Right. You know what I mean? Whoa. And I like uh, Bill Burr for waking up the show too. Bill's just great. I have made so many people in this last year laugh imitating Bill Burr that it just the doing his joke that I think he's one of the best that they instantly run and download it. Because, you know, even though Bill's huge, we all know that household name out in the regular America, where I've been out in some places this year in regular America, they don't know, they don't know all the names. They don't always know them. So that's the question that kept coming at me is, you know, hey, you know, you know what's going on. Who's somebody I should be listening to when I bring up certain names? But yeah, so we're going on with the show. 11, 1045 is also a good place for development. It's not, it's uh, where Steve Simone became who he is. Okay. Because it, the room could be, get a little tired by then. And it's not 1045 anymore. It's almost 11. Keep that in mind. Cause Just, people, uh, possibly run the light. They run the light, but it's not always my, you have to look at that in the gray area. I can understand people getting mad about people going long, but man, when someone's in the middle of a hot moment, you let them finish their joke. Okay. It's not the end of a board meeting. You know what I mean? Let's go to lunch. So a few minute leeway is okay. And also too, let's be honest, there is a psyche with, with comics and stars. They feel it. They, they're, they're having their moments. They got a show on TV. It, what, I mean, confined to 15 minutes? Like I'm this kid that just came on, you know? The only so, problem I see with that though is it, like, and you know comics better than I do. Or no, just I know as, I'm like you. you I just, that isn't it at all. But, but the reason I ever worked in this job, Earl, is because I have a mindset that is like a comedian in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of relating. But you know comics, though, they see the first comic run the light, then they're going to want to run the light. So I feel bad for the comics at the end of the lineup. I know. You know, it's not fair Those to them. Those guys are getting on my back. They wanted me to get harder on them. And I just, I, I'm dealing with a lot of people, which is one of the reasons the place is in good shape right now. Is going to be for a long time. Come on, let's just talk about it. Come on. Sebastian, John Caparulo, Bill Burr. Dove Davidoff, Chelsea Peretti, Bobby Lee, Steve Byrne, Ian Edwards, Owen Smith. Every one of them's great. <laughs> Whitney so, Cummings. Whitney Cummings is a monster. She's awesome. I, I I just love seeing how Whitney commands everything. I just I just remember her so much, you know, coming to the store. Getting dropped off sometimes, sometimes driving in, her hair pulled back and sweatshirt on. So a lot of times, no makeup on, coming from, she would say, just from sleep. Still so beautiful, though. Oh, she's stunning. And uh... Just to look at her, to have her come up and 
talk to me and look at me. It's like, I thought to myself too, and I'm not talking about what I personally, it's talking about knowing the energy coming from you. I'm like, God, you're intoxicating. She's intoxicating. And then they'll go on the stage the way that she did and work at it to be able to get to, I don't know. She just became everything I thought she was going to be. I just, my only thing I will say is I think Amy Schumer is really, really funny, but I also think Whitney is a different kind of funny in that same vein. Like they're, both being really honest, but it's just two different types of energies of it. Well, I would think Amy you know? would fit the energy of the store, kind of that gritty. Uh, uh, she's great. I talked to her once at the cover booth. I, she came up and we talked. I told her, listen, I, this so uh, anyone would know. I was like, you're welcome to be a paid regular anytime you want. <laughs> just come. <laughs> no problem. She goes, thank you so much, Tommy. You know, but she was fine. So, uh, and I've been that way, but I did that with, um, with, um, Jezelneck, you know? Right. I said that to him backstage too. I said, you are more than welcome to be a paid regular here at the store anytime you want. And these people were, I was being told by other people that near the end of my time, they're starting to think I was keeping these people out. I'm like, no, I am not keeping these people out. You know? What about someone like Dane Cook? He never really seemed to uh, be a store guy. Uh, did you have many interactions with him? I didn't have a lot of interactions with him. Dane... My first time I got to meet some of these guys, which is always interesting, is, you know, I'm here I am in 2001, 2002, 2003, and I've been working nightclubs for years. I've actually already done a lot of stuff, but I'm just sitting behind the counter in the main room, you know, and these shows are going, Louis Anderson and Friends, and these guys don't know who I am, not, and I am nobody, but they don't know that I'm as old as I am and that I can think to the level I can. They don't know. I just am sitting there. And that's how I met Dane Cook and uh, a few people like that. Um, Bert Kreischer was up there. Uh, uh, that's the other one I'm trying to think of right now. Oh, come on. Well, I'll remember it in a minute. But I just, Dane is a great performer. He's very charismatic. Um, he has good energy. I understand they did what he did. He also is a self-marketer. He's a great example, which I think most comedians follow the blueprint of now, of being, you know, he did it through Facebook. I heard all this while it was going on. It's not that anyone said he was bad. Is that people were heralding him in the comics. So I'm just listening and stuff that he's a genius with Facebook when Facebook before, before I'm not Facebook. MySpace. MySpace before Facebook. And that he, you know, took the time every night and built a fan base and did all these things. Um, I just don't know what to say. You know, it's not that we were keeping him out. Polly had said that he should come in. Is that he kind of just got to a point where he's like, I've been at the Laugh Factory all these years, you know? Mitzi, we set up a showcase for him once with Mitzi and maybe 2007, 2008. And she came in and she was there till like 10. And she goes, you know, where is this guy? And I'm like, oh, he's just not here yet. She goes, well, I'm not waiting around all night. It doesn't work like that. What time did you tell him? I said, I told him that you were going to be here for the show at 9 to come back, be there at 9, go anywhere between that. She just wanted him to throw in and do a set in the show. And he showed up at 11. And I was like, dude, you know, Mitzi was waiting. He was, well, you know, I'm, I'm here now. And my only thing I thought at that moment was like, dude, you're talking about 77-year-old Mitzi Shore, the legend. Just be respectful that you're, do you know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't have to explain it. And it's not that he's that he was mad. It's just he was just a little bit like, you know, well, I'm here now. You know, let me just do the set and then I'll be in. She was still in that position of wanting to see him. And then the, the way I've heard it, could be wrong, is that Joe Rogan and Dane Cook showed up here in L.A. kind of at the same time. 
And Joe ended up at the store and Dane ended up at the Laugh Factory. Right. That's kind of the way the story goes. You know, don't it got to be with me. I got to be at the store so long. I would have people come up to me between 2008 and 2012 thinking I'd been there since the 80s. <laughs> like, you were here, right? You remember when Jim Carrey was here, right, Tommy? I'm like, no. I was <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I'm Jack Nicholson in, in the, the shining. You always been here, <laughs> but you were such a part of the store. I mean, uh, personality wise. Yeah. Ralphie, the guy who'd been a door guy for a long time, he came up and really said some good things to me. And he'd been with Mitzi a long time. I remember telling Mitzi, I said, Mitzi, I met Ralphie worked for you a long time. She goes, Oh God, you two are alike. You both love the store and you understand me because you got to understand her a little bit, you know? But yeah, uh, you know, we get into that. We were in the middle of talking about the OR shows and then we go on. The bottom line is, is that up to that point from 11 o'clock on is where you get a lot of development time. Plus you put a few people that are really good that want to work out late or whatever reason. Let me ask you this though, on a lineup. Where do you start to put in the darker comics? You know, like the ones who are... Uh well, Mitzi used like 11.30, you know. Right. 11.30 to her, 11.15 to 11.45 for her was a thing, Mitzi Shore, and this is really important, everybody, and I one of her prolific things. 11.15, or maybe even 11 to 11.45, she called Twilight. She goes, that's right between where the show makes sense and you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. I go, Mitzi, that's brilliant. You think so? I mean, this is the way we talked with each other. And yes, yeah, so Twilight. And that's why it's such a great development time because audiences are, you know what I mean? And people have been drinking, you know? Some people might want to leave. You can lose them if you don't get them. Oh, sure. These are challenging times. And then the pass off. And that's where you're talking between those guys, those late scheduled. Those are the people you don't want to see Sue and doing no 20 minutes. No way. Those, those do need to be 15 minute spots. And that is where tension can grow in the OR show too. When comics who are, going on at 11 o'clock at night are still wanting to do 20 minutes. It's like, you know, we just survived that because that's Bill Burr. But come on, man, it's Bill Burr. And that's actually not Bill Burr. That guy doesn't do longer than his time. It's, right. his, it's his mentality. You know, that's why he is who he is. He's, he's regimented. You know what I mean? And the real supporter of other people and their time and their creativity. And the thing I do love about comedians is that they give each other credit for even trying. That's big stuff. Well, that's the toughest business in the world. But, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, so you put on, like, someone like Dave Taylor. You say, well, I'm going to put Dave Taylor on. Well, we've Dave Taylor is very important. He's a perfect example. of You have to have things like Dave Taylor in the store or it's too safe. I mean, you want it to be a safe club, but you want it, don't, comedically, you want to be able to take risks. Um, David's a pure cynic. He's brilliant. If you're looking at him and you're thinking his set isn't working, you're wrong. It is still working. It's just he's being so purely, unleashably uh, evil or cynical at that moment that it's beyond funny. Eddie, if David Taylor would just have some comedians sitting in the back, anytime there's some people in the room at the end, there'd be laughs hysterically the whole time because he's so good at what he does. But you got to have some dark things. And I just, I don't know, you know. I, I David... I enjoy listening to David destroy me. I do. I enjoy what he has to say. Yeah, but he says it so honestly. And then at the very end, he might make some other remark. You know, like at the very end of the worst thing I ever heard him say one time, he goes like this. He goes, but I'll still be asking for a spot next week. <laughs> like, you know, like it was, it was funny. So I'll give him this. He always did it while you were in the room. 
which I found impressive because, you know, a lot of comics would imitate you. And- yeah, well, imitation is always part of the thing. The only thing I always came off of me is I didn't understand the James Cagney thing. I, I've heard myself on tape and how I talk, and I'm not like, yeah, yeah, well, you see, you know, we got to get the book. <laughs> but whatever people want to do, I don't care. You know, it's it's a form of flattery in a way. And it's been going on a long time. I mean, and it happened to me at the club in Florida, too. At T-Birds? Yeah. We have to have people come to our Halloween party dressed as me. And it wasn't necessarily like honoring. So I get it. You know, sometimes it was. I've had always had an I've always had an effect like that. That's part of my thing. That's part of what this whole thing goes on with me is uh, I have a a field around me that people get affected by me and they feel lots of different things. It's always been that way with me. Um, that's why me being a talent coordinator at a comedy store is unusual because I'm usually a person who is the center of attention or a person who's up front. I've well, cause the, you're the I've person the, in charge. I've been, yeah. I've been the front man, you know, that's what I kind of was like. Dean and I were kind of thinking like when we were doing our years together is I was kind of like a spokesman for the store a little bit and not like I'm doing everything. I did some interviews for the news and stuff, but spokesman like always there to present a positive image of it, a respectful uh, relation to Mitzi, a, a respectful uh, relation to her children now overseeing it. You know what I mean? I always made sure that people understood these things were in place. And uh, I don't know. I felt like I always gave it love. And plus, too, I, it's just a magical spot. Or I mean, come on. It's with Ciro's. It's the comedy store. I remember Harris Pete going, one time all the electricity went off on the whole street except for this building. This building's roots go so deep. They're locked in hell. <laughs> he might be onto something. <laughs> well, I said this uh, one time to Mitzi. I said, Mitzi, I'm starting to think that the original room is one of the seven portals to hell. And she just goes, yep. Because <laughs> there can be a dark energy in that room. It uh, can, but it's also about its honesty. It is, if people don't know, it's one of the few rooms in the country, let alone the world, maybe the only one, where comics can say anything that they want. Now, it's not that that's encouraging you to get up real early in the show and be disgusting, but if you know in your mind when you go up to do a set and a stage that you could talk about anything you want, anything, Mitzi felt that freed you to create. Now, that's high thinking there. Oh, for so, sure. You know, but, you know, she still doesn't expect people to be real disgusting and stuff early. Do you believe in the, uh, it's a term I heard when I really first started going up to the store, a store comic versus like you go to the improv, you do your thing, but you come up to the store, it's a whole different animal. The way I used to explain to it all the time about people being store comics or working out at the store or growing at the store is that store comics had all kinds of legendary stories around the room of fixing, I mean, not around the room, around the country of fixing rooms. I heard several stories where there'd be four comics on a show and they're in some small town somewhere and they go up and the crowd's rowdy and they're trying to throw bottles at them and they don't know what to do. And then in the midst of the four comics, there's a store comic. The store comic comes out on the stage, turns it on them, becomes friends with them all, does a ground with them, gets them all to listen, walks back off and sets up the last two people to have a show store comics are that much stronger and it comes from the setup of the rooms belly room and the or are designed for intimacy they build intimacy skills one of mitzi shore's line a stand-up set is an intimate conversation with a crowd 
no, you know what I mean? That's it. So it's a, you can scream at them, but you're still having a conversation. Like we would, this is in your house. Even if I'm going on and on and on and on, I'd still be inside your house having an intimate conversation with you. That's what she means. Like feel like you are having a conversation, not with one person, but the crowd is a person. And then you, then the relatability comes in, but she's also a believer in repetition. Here's a famous Mitzi Shore quote. She quoted Socrates to me. I think it's Socrates. I don't want anybody to look it up and I'm wrong. It might be Plato. My but, fans don't look up the facts. Okay, okay that's good. <laughs> but she said this to me. She goes, uh, in the car, driving her to a doctor's appointment. That's the reason I'd be driving her to these doctor's appointments, this little lady, this mystical little lady, and these things would just come out of her mouth. And I was like, going, you know, Mitzi, I've noticed that... Uh, the more comics get to go up, I guess that's part of the process. That's how they get better. She goes, with repetition, it's not that the task becomes easier. It's that we become masters of the task. She goes, this is extremely applicable to comics, for they have to go up over and over again. And comedy doesn't get any easier, but they do get better at it. And of course, I'm sitting here driving the van, looking at her going like, who are you, lady? Where are you from? These things she's saying are so prolific. This is what I'm talking about. It's like, the I want, I got to find a way for the world to understand who Mitzi is. She's still alive. She's just quiet now. She's, I like to think of her in a meditative state, which she is. Do you know what I mean? And she gave a lot of herself. So she has peace now and she's very cared for by her family. And that makes my heart feel very good because she deserves it, you know, but still these things she said and the way she was now there's like, like I think I've said this before. You talk to Argus and a lot of other comics about Mitzi in the seventies and the eighties. I didn't know her that way, really. You know, she was still getting around stuff, but I just, I did get to hear her speak certain things with great wisdom, like floating around the statement and with perfect, perfect comedic timing. Perfect timing. That's why I knew, that's what told me right then. I go, no wonder you know when everything's right, because her timing is flawless. She made me laugh so hard. I think that's part of the reason I, I miss her as a friend, okay? Is that I would hang out with her sometimes for, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. And it sometimes would be long periods of quiet, which you have, I learned you have to give her, which is fine. But other times we talk to her and she say these funniest things. So I don't know. I, I just always want people to know that Mitzi is a big, big part of what the feeling at the store is about now. And also beyond the comedy store for any comedian that's listened to this to anywhere in the country. And believe me, I, I didn't mean to come off the wrong way when I said a minute ago about any clubs in New York or anything like that. I think they're all great. I've been to most of them. Um, I love the vibe in it. I think there's a certain quality that comes from uh, uh, being in New York that gains a great strength to comedians that shows in there. It's just also too, the thing with LA is I've always said that when they come to LA and they're getting ready for television and film, they have to get a thing on called their LA beats, which means they just have to get a little bit more, just like let their breath out teeny bit just to get ready for television and film. But yet the strength of New York is in there and adds a different quality. It's, it's just, that's the way I feel about it. Um, but for any comedian, anywhere. I just feel there's certain things that I learned being around Mitzi and kind of digested from her and translated into some of my own words with Mitzi that are very important to your guys' psyche when working at this craft. And they're not things 
that like some comedy class, they're not things that are telling you what to do or say. When she decided that she was, she thought I was getting to a point where I was starting to actually give words to people and she was sitting with me and she would be like, that was great. God, what did you think of that? I'd start talking to people. She said to me one time driving home, she goes, all right, like this is one of those lesson moments. And she goes, if you're gonna do my work and I think you can't, you have to remember some important things. I went, okay. She goes, first thing, don't tell them what to say and don't tell them what to do. She goes, but if you have a feeling or a thought that comes into your mind when you're watching them, go and tell them immediately, immediately. She goes, and you'll find that a lot of times it's exactly what they needed to hear at that moment to figure something out or to get something lined up. She goes, and you know what? A lot of times they'll come back to you later and they'll say, oh, thank you for what you said. And you'll be looking at them and you won't even remember what you said. She goes, it's that pure. She goes, and this is why I'm so happy you're here is because I feel you're the first person I've met while I've been here that could do this like I can do this. That was the magic of what we were doing. Is she was filling me with a belief. Do you know what I mean? Like something I hadn't believed in myself for. She goes, you can do comedic development. You understand the science of my scheduling. And all the time that I talk to comedians, like from 2006 to 2014, if you can have them relate back to what we talked about, it was usually stuff like, you know, you need to let your breath out, you need to slow down, you know, something like that, you know, or, or uh, uh, a certain like kind of a conversation that's just built around them. I don't know what it was. And that was part of what I felt I left as an imprint on the group of people that were there. And this is like what Tony Hinchcliffe, all right? Benji. Um, Matt Edgar. Matt Edgar, Sa- Sandy Danto. Brent Moore and I talked to, even though he had there's a lot of stuff naturally figured out. Whitney I talked to. She listened to me, but didn't listen to me so much. But when Mitzi confirmed for her uh, something one time, that she just said to her, you know, you're pushing a little bit. Whitney came around and I just said, Whitney, you, I feel like you're pushing. And she's the kind of person that figures out her own things. I would like to say a, a cute story about Mitzi and Whitney, though, that I, I liked. And it was very important and poignant. Is uh, one time Mitzi came in and she's watching and Whitney's up 9.30. She went on early, 9.30, 9.45. Mitzi had no problem with her working out there. Uh, she did work her late some, but after Whitney was there maybe two years, she gave me the okay to start giving her the earlier spots. And so I did want to do it, but she got the okay from the queen because the queen was watching her. And she always did say, she goes, God, she's beautiful. You know, things like, yeah, but she just, that's a nice dimension. If anyone want to go in story history, she worked on Felicia Michaels for a long time and then felt very upset about it because Felicia decided to get married and have children, which believe me has more value in your life. But Mitzi just wanted her to be a comedian. So she had a thought of a beautiful woman being comedian. She had no problem with it. She was looking for the right one. And she started to get in with me on Whitney. Like she was digging it. What was going on? And Eliza, she was digging on what was going on there. She goes, wow, they're both pretty and they're funny. This is cool. You know? And, um, but one time Whitney does her set, she goes over, she kneels down. I'm in the cover booth in the OR and I look over and she's kneeling and she's with Mitzi a second. She gets up, she walks around when she comes up and she's walking up the stairs to talk to me in the front of the cover booth. I see she's almost a little bit emotional. I'm maybe like, what I think of what she goes, 
my God, Tommy, she goes, Mitzi was just talking to me and she looked so deep into my eyes. I feel like she looked into my soul. I went, really? She goes, God. I said, well, it was good, Whitney. Oh, thank you so much, T-Bye. I go around Alfred when she's getting me to go, Miss Shore wants you to walk her to the car. And so I go to walk her down to the car, right? And Mitzi goes, I'm holding her hand and she's quiet. She goes, I took a good look into your girl's eyes tonight. I said, oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, you, you talked with Whitney. She goes, yep. What'd you see, Mitzi? She goes, determination. And some other things I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. And I got to tell that later to Whitney, what Mitzi had said. I think I even called her and told her. And the thing I love about that is that is, a, that is an important moment. That's Whitney Cummings and Mitzi Shore, two elevated, intelligent women sharing a moment. You know what I mean? And from that point on, Every time I was making the lineup of Mitzi, I would be lighted out. She's over there. She goes, know what you're doing over there? Yeah. She goes, how many sets are you giving Hedy Lamar? And Hedy Lamar, for anyone who doesn't know, is a famous 40s actress, beautiful, played Delilah and Samson and Delilah. So it was a beautiful reference, an intelligent woman. So Mitzi kidded me and called Whitney, not all the time, but sometimes you go, Hedy Lamar, how many spots are you giving Hedy Lamar? So I'm giving her four. Four? So I just give her three? You do what you want. That's when I'm hearing that stuff. That's not just me going like, oh, I'm making this decision. That's having my mentor give me these feelings while I'm doing it. So that's why the lineups are magical. And I felt we're very much magical during that time is we talked about things and had fun with it. Let's see that Bill Burr guy's in town. He wants to work Tuesday and Wednesday. Oh, he's great. You're putting him in hot spots, aren't you? Yeah. That kind of thing. You know what I mean? And this isn't a month. This is 2006 to 2000. You know, nine. In 2009 on, I just would write them out and then I'd bring her over and bring her glasses and let them look at them. And then, it's, you know, eventually she just didn't even want to do it that much. But I will say this, which so people can understand. She turned to me in 2008, and I remember this, and she said to me, she goes, I have come to the conclusion that I am retired from the comedy store and I have nothing to be ashamed of because I did a good job. I said, awesome job. And then she goes to me, what is it that you would want of me now. So I want you to look at talent as long as you want to or can. She goes, you pick them and I'll look at them with you and I'll tell you what I think. So I always made sure for artistic reasons, not my ego, I always made sure to tell any comic when she had a comment about him. I always told them so they know their moment in Mitzi's mind and what she said. You know, she came in, we talked the Leslie Jones story last week. Oh, she came in and watched her at that spot. And she goes, oh my God, is she great. And I said, Mitzi, and I, I complimented her to make her feel good. I wanted her to feel it. I said, Mitzi, I put her where you told me to. I'm scheduled just like it did. You set it up. She goes, oh, we did it together, honey. This made her so happy. Do you know what I mean? When I see Leslie Jones on Saturday Night Live right now, the thing that's great about it is she's so ready for that. Absolutely. That comes from being, I mean, ruling the OR. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's, I think the OR is the toughest room in the country. It is said to be many. And then, you know, it has a, it's, it's uh, alluring too. Ask Jeff Garland. Uh, Jeff Garland works out there because he's, he feels drawn to it. 
You know, he can work out anywhere he wants, but he loves coming and doing the original room because he likes the way it feels. That's a big thing. How does it feel, right? Well, I also think if you can get a laugh in the OR, you can get a laugh in any room in the country. Yes, I, I always said that. Here's the line I said to Mitzi she liked, if you guys like this one. I said, mumbles and grumbles in the OR mean big laughs in other rooms. And Mitzi oh. goes, that's perfect. So that's it. Oh, it's true. I mean, I've seen a room comics not doing great in that room. It's tough. And I like to point out that because of the where it's located, because of its longstanding reputation, because they have always stayed 21 and over, which is, I'm just sorry, this is the way that it is, everybody. All right? 18 to 21-year-old guys are problems sometimes. Not all the time. 18 to 21-year-old you know, girls, hey, they look great, but they seem to come along with the 18 to 21-year-old guys. Just cutting off at that one thing, you cut out half your problems. I know this from my nightclub years in Florida. We stayed 21 and above the club I worked at there, and we always had 20, 30, 40-year-old people that were cool people. The clubs that decided to go for the cover charge money and go 18 and above, oh, they had bouncers and police and problems, and you know what I mean? There are there that you think you're making more money, but you're making a bigger problem. So the fact that that we've always that the store always stayed 21 and above, I thought was really important. And the fact that there's hotels around there, there's a lot of people that work in this industry around here. Um, that people come from all over the country that want to come in here. It costs so much money to park the car. It costs X amount of dollars to get in. Believe it or not, those things are things that make the companies around you uh, profit. But it's also a filter. It's a filter that brings in people that are pretty smart, that can handle their own lives. And when I say that, it's not like, I mean, you know, anybody that can handle their own life. So when I, and, it, and the point I put that together for is here you are as a comic, you're working out on stage and you are getting to work out for a, like a representation of intelligent people from all different parts of walks of life, including other countries. This is what we were saying earlier. It makes it so that you are hitting human, human beings with stuff. So yeah, I'm a big believer in the OR being a very, very special place. You know? Now, do you remember the last person Mitzi passed? I mean, Justin Martindale, I think, was... Uh... What Justin Martindale's story is, it's not just that he passes, that this is a spontaneous happening where this last time we saw Mitzi flip. You know, she came walking in past the OR. I'm like, Alfred, where's she? Goes, she says she wants to go to the main room. So he takes her down the main room to Kathy Lewis. Show. Oh, you know, it's Kathy Lewis's show down there. And it's a bringer show. And so I went over and started to admit, so you do realize that you're in the room that's the bringer show. She looked at me, she goes, I know where I am. I know what I'm watching. Why don't you just go back and do whatever you were fucking doing? So I was like, okay. So I went back and I went to the cover booth and then I, Alfred comes over a half an hour later. He goes, Tommy, 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 you have to come over right now. Me sure she's going crazy over this guy on stage. She says, get Tommy, get the cookie jar right now. Get them right now. And so I come over. I go, what is it? And she goes, oh God, this kid on stage. He's melodious. He's melodious. He's great. And it was Justin. It's Justin Martin. He was on stage and he was doing his set and this and that. She goes, get him right now. Talk to him. I went, okay. And I, I went, I talked to him and Justin, this was beautiful. It's like me talking to Melissa Villasenor for the first time. Didn't know anything about store. Didn't anything about mitts. They didn't know anything. What? Who? Justin's just a talented guy. Turns out, I believe if I'm correct, I could be incorrect. Fortune Feimster and Justin both had been with Groundlings and basically came from Groundlings to the store. They are our two or the stores to uh, uh, Groundlings transplants. Well, I got kicked out of the Groundlings. So. Uh, true story. Groundlings started at the store in the belly room with Mitzi. 
And uh, once the, uh, the other person that was doing it uh, wanted to charge money, uh, she didn't want to do it there anymore. She said, she calls it extemporaneous comedy. Right. And she doesn't like the word improv because of the problems with Bud. Well, all right, yeah, right. So extemporaneous comedy. That was what she, yeah. Because I'd say improv. She goes, don't say that word. It's extemporaneous comedy. Okay. <laughs> was there a, uh, speaking of the improv, did you mind if comics worked both clubs? No, I never played that game. She, she was trying to hold on to that a little bit when I first started. These are things that I talked to her about. It's not it's just silliness. It's, it's, it's all over now. And Jamie, you know, she was a big thing for God rest Freddie Soto's soul, but she was really disappointed that Freddie worked out at the Laugh Factory instead of uh, the store. Really, really, really bothered her. She goes, oh, he doesn't know it like he's punching me in the chest. I, Freddie's my kid. He's beautiful. He's sweet. I know him. I worked on him. I talked to him. I developed him. And now he doesn't even do a set here. He does a set down the street. He said, I don't have a problem with him working out at the Laugh Factory, but that's supposed to be his afterthought. Right. The store's supposed to be his priority. She goes, but you know, I don't say anything to him. So you don't? She goes, no. She goes, you know what I do, honey, a lot is I just play dumb. I just don't say anything. I leave it alone. She was a big person in saying that she could identify talent and what people had, but she wasn't a person to tell you what to do with it. I don't do that part. So anybody, and this may be a question, anybody that got passed by her has something that she saw in them. It's still up to them to make it into what she sees. That's her perspective. So we couldn't, we won't, bring up anybody that she ever made a paid regular that I could say, oh, I don't know why she did that. That's stupid. Because that just all it means to me, because I realized how she is and how I know she is, that that person does have something going on in there. They just never tapped into it or they never got it going on. But she identified it. Mitzi's perspective on human beings having special qualities or something that's going on in there went beyond comics, Earl. I got really like, she flipped me out with some of her stuff. Channel surfing one day, looking for the news. I just ran across a video. She goes, stop. I go, you want to watch this? She goes, stop. And we're watching, you know, Amy Winehouse singing Rehab. And this just came out. And Mitzi goes, oh, my God, that girl's a star. I said, you like this music? She goes, he's a fucking star. <laughs> and people can say what they want about Amy, but she did have star. If she, hadn't, she had a quality that made her make it. And another one was Barack Obama. I saw I was watching the Fox News with her in like 2006. Bill O'Reilly, who she's like, why do you watch him? She goes, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about him. But she began to feel the news is more interesting than, than the, the made-up shows. It's more interesting than the made-up things. Watching that, Barack Obama does a speech. And when he gets done, she turns around and she goes, oh, they're just like, oh. and Bill O'Reilly is being like, this is like, you know, young, uh, you know, guy from Chicago making a lot of waves. People are talking a lot of things. Let's watch this speech right now. And when he got done, she goes, oh, my God, did you see that? She goes, yeah. She goes, that's the best speech I've seen given since John F. Kennedy. So really? She goes, what did they say? They say they might run for president? What? She says, yeah. She goes, oh, my God, he could win. And I went, I don't think so, Mitzi. She goes, you don't understand, honey. This country needs somebody who can fucking talk. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing really hard, but it's the truth in a way. 
Isn't it? I mean, people gonna they get the end of this presidency. People can say what they want. They go, who is this idiot? He doesn't know anything about the political system for him to be making any comments. Hey, Barack Obama is a great speaker. I enjoy watching him speak anytime he speaks. He takes his time. He thinks. Do you know what I mean? I'm serious. We don't have flub up videos playing on the late night shows of Barack Obama saying the wrong thing like we used to before. Remember no. that? You know, they miss quotes all the time. You know, now it's just like so. That's what, and then he became president. So my point being is that she identified that he had an extraordinary quality. And it's how about you looked for, like, who was the first person you passed? Do you remember? I made one move that was like uh, a move, you know, Don Barris was the only person who was in on this with me. Like, did Mitzi say, before you say this, did she say, all right, Tommy, it's it's your game to pass people? I made one illegal move. But then I told her after the fact I did it, and she didn't question me, but I did it. Got right around Christmas. I couldn't tell you, man, 2006, 2007 maybe. And I said to Don Barris, and I were talking late one night, so I just don't know what to do. I said, I can't get Missy to look at anybody. She said that she, she went through this thing at like 2010 where she said, that's our group. That's our group. She goes, let's not look at anybody for a minute. And she meant like, you know, as the last couple ones came in, that that was it. Um, and so I couldn't get her to look at anybody. And I really felt bad for Mark Ellis, Jeff Dennis, and Ryan O'Neill. They'd worked there a long time. They were hosting. And they didn't seem like they were going to get over the next level. So Don Barris and I, and I can say this now because it's after the fact, but at the moment it was very important that they didn't know that that's how it was done, is that Don Barris and I talked, I said, Don, I'm thinking about just passing them. I said, but, you know, and I said, I don't know if that's ever actually happened here before without having a showcase without 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 her permission and don looked at me and he goes tommy you know you don's been a big supporter of me as a human being as i have i hope he feels of him and he was like tommy you've done so much already he goes if you if you did that i said i think it would send a message of hope too to all the other people these guys deserve to be paid regulars they've been here for years they're doing a great job that kind of thing right and so those were the first three guys that I just made paid regulars. But I did tell them that Mitzi said it was okay. Now, where the truth is, she did say it was okay after I did it for a while. I told her I did it. Um, the next thing I wanted to do is I, I by the last, sh- I, I, I don't know, you know, I pushed for people that she didn't, wouldn't push for. So it didn't take much for her to like Chris D'Elia. Anyone would guess that. I mean, I knew he was good, but I just wanted her to see him. And I had already been giving him belly room spots. And that's when she gave me her condone, like, go, you, sh- you, you know, if you're not already, you need to give him a lot of spots. That's what development is, right. is that when you think someone's the right one, then you start giving them three, four spots a week or two. Two's good. You know, I don't know. There's, there's a, there, everybody makes up their own psychological on how many spots and they get for what reason. But it's, Adam knows it's very hard. To, to keep going, to, to try to please everybody every time. Well, you can. I mean, that goes back to what we said in the last podcast when I saw you in the booth with the three A-room comics all giving you shit. They wanted to go on now. Adam gets the same thing. Emails, Facebook, Twitter messages. Why is this guy getting spots? Why is this girl? See, the thing is that where, where I guess I differed from him is I didn't put myself in a position to be able to read all that stuff. What do I want to care what everybody has to say? And Mitzi put me into motion. She said to me, she goes, you're going to be saying good things and bad things. Just don't you worry about it. Use your feelings and do what you do. I felt like it was very much 
like my uh, Marlon Brando is the godfather and Michael Corleone while Michael's trying to have the meetings and the grandfather's in the background. I told her, and then please no, you know, she told me bunch of people called her. Sure. They did. They just called her complained about me. Stuff. Out of nowhere. Once in a while, she'd be like, Oh, my ear. I go, what's wrong with your ear? She goes, it gets full of people calling me to try to tell me what they think about you doing your job. <laughs> I go, people call on me. She goes, Oh God, what you think they don't know what, a lot she goes a few so did they like me she goes some the things that some people say they don't like about you is just for their own selfish reasons she goes i'm mainly getting good feedback okay and i was like okay I, I know that's important she goes oh it's not important at all i don't give a shit what any of them are saying to me i'm gonna still do what i want that's the way she was you know would I mean? she ever tell you the ones who were saying bad things about you no if you found out, would that have affected your their spots? No. How did that that that's that question in a way is irrelevant because I had that to my face. Okay, I have many people that basically call me. Rick Ingram's great. I still see him now because he lives in the same street I do, and a wave, and I have an enjoyable conversation. But I remember him sitting in the cover booth, calling me a loser, all these things. You know, whatever what you're doing, calling me up on the phone, having these arguments with me about how I, the lineups I was making were terrible and all this stuff, right? So point being is that my whole thing was that you can attack me and say stuff like they'd be, but if you still do really good on stage, I don't care. I don't care. You know why I don't care? Because I'm not like overly sensitive with my feelings or I'm not uh, a revenge-oriented guy. The truth of the matter is I'm actually cool. I'm cool with people being who they are and doing what they want. I said to Mitzi once, something I've said a bunch of times in my life. I said, you know what I like about you, Mitzi? You're cool. She goes, thank you, honey. I said, cool's a small club, have you noticed? She goes, oh yeah. But the point is with cool people is that if you get a cool person in the middle of everyone else, it makes it that much cooler. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. And that's why Dean and I we're a pretty good match for a long time because Dean's pretty cool too. So we kept it cool. And in that coolness was the creativity. And for you people listening, he's talking about Dean Gelber, the old uh, general manager of the club. Well, you can say it's old, but he still did it for 10 years. Well, I don't mean old. I meant, yeah. you know. Uh, and Dean's special too, because he grew up with those guys. So he knows Peter and Polly. He knew Mitzi when he was young. So him coming in at the time that he did, he, he performed a very important function. He came in as like an extended member of the family, helping with their family's legacy. So Dean's, Dean's contribution was moving up to where it is. But I still say now, I think the people that are there now are great. I, I dig Eric and I dig Adam. I just know that Adam, the way he is, for him to have people bombard him too hard, that's not the best way for him to, to, to have to deal with. You know what I mean? That's not good for him. Oh, it's... Uh, I've. He needs to, he just needs to be people just to go, thank you for what you're giving me. That would make him feel much better. That's what I do. Well, I, I'm sure some people do, you know? Very few. I mean, it's still, uh, why is this guy getting spots? Why is this girl getting spots? That's always going to happen. That's an endless question. So that's just, that's a, that's a doorway into something, but not addressing it and everything is the thing. So I just always made it. So anyone could come talk to me anytime. I just think it would be great if you said, hey, well, get more credits than they do, and you can go on before them. Yeah. Sometimes it isn't about that. 
But what know. is it about like is our you know because I think a lot of people myself included were like what do I got to do is 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 credits credits help right uh, credits and power you know I remember I put Brent Morin in there in the main room at 9:45 on a Saturday once and god dang did I get it and that's a note that undateable wasn't out yet none of that but he did he blew it up but he's put great I put him there because uh, he, as Mitzi would say, he was qualified for the position <laughs> and he did good. I took some risks like that, but people fall into natural places a lot too. The store is like many comedy clubs is he's got lots of great comics that have to constantly hone their craft. I mean, what is it? You know, it's, it's about doing it. It's about getting up over and over again. I looked at Jim Gaffigan's show. His, his new show is about someone doing stand up. Louis C.K., I mean, they're so smart. Jerry Seinfeld laid the bla the blueprint, you know? Even Dick Van Dyke's show, comedy writer at least, you know? So it fits. Why don't you think Seinfeld ever uh, performed at the store or uh, uh, performed the there more often? Uh, the store I, I heard is he showcased for Mitzi. It, it, the thing that happened with her is this is what I was trying to tell her. I told her this. I said, Mitzi, you became a little bit of a victim of absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because what do you fucking mean by that? And I went, saying that you got to a point where you made these decisions sometimes because you were in such a position to do them that maybe you didn't get a chance to get the right information. And I honestly feel that when Jerry Seinfeld was coming into town to showcase for her, and I, don't, I wasn't there, but it's what I feel, that she just had a lot of jealous comics at that time that were in, in her ear trying to tell her, don't bring them in, don't bring them in. And so when she saw him, she was like, she didn't pass him. And that's where Jerry Seinfeld has the biggest point in the world. Is that okay. Mitzi's a, a legendary person who's able to see talent. How could she not see how talented Jerry Seinfeld was? He didn't grow into that talent. He is born with it. So she was, she was mad at herself for doing certain things like that. I remember her watching Seinfeld in the late 2000s. And you're going, oh, God, what was I thinking? So that was, he would be probably, would you say, her biggest regret? She was like, she knew she would have brought him in. What would you, who would you say is your biggest regret? Maybe someone you, you know, just didn't uh, at the time give an opportunity well, to? I, one guy I got off on a bad foot with and I felt bad was Nick Thume. Is he came in and he was on a Sunday night or something and he said he was going to go up and do like eight minutes. And he got on stage and it was the potluck night. And my perspective, I'm sorry, was that all week long these employees and these people wait for their sets. They wait for their sets. But Nick was doing pretty good, but he was at 11 minutes, 12 minutes, 13 minutes. I lit him. I, I flashed him and stuff and he wasn't responding to it. So, you know, <laughs> typical old Tommy fashion. I just yelled out from the cover booth. They went, hey, dude, you got to wrap it up. And he was just looked at me like he never ever heard of anything of that like that in his life. Somebody in a comedy club yell out for you to be fit when you're Nick, because you, he was already doing well then. So he came up to the cover booth and he yelled at me and he's like, you know, do you know who I am and what I've done? Blah, blah, blah. Another person I regret a little bit is TJ Miller. Is TJ kept, he showcased from Mitzi at the same time that Sean Halpin and Chris D'Elia and Ashley Hamilton did. This was a showcase I showed her, those guys. And uh, she didn't want to pass him right then, but she said he did have a quality. 
So or the idea was for him to come back, but he just got into movies right away and stuff. And when I see him now uh, in Silicon Valley and I think about him coming into work out, I always liked him and I always thought he did good work. So yes, I, I think that TJ should have been a paid regular the whole time, like since the time he went up. I should have even then reached in. And even though Ashley Hamilton was mad and, and other stuff, I kind of regret not allowing him in in a way. But was he, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but was he even a comic? Well, he wanted to be, and he just, you know, things kind of came his way. It's, I mean, it, I know he's George Hamilton's dad. Not just, he's that too. but Good looking he, guy. Yeah, he just He's always had things kind of come his way a little bit. I mean, he's, and so one of the conversations that we had uh, with him, it, keep in mind, there was that time when I was not around the store for a little while because I was helping Mitzi stay at her place. And this is part of my experience with her. I didn't go over, if anyone thinks I did, I didn't go over for an hour and go back to the store. I went over there Sundays and Mondays at three in the afternoon and I didn't leave till either midnight or one or 11 or 10 or nine or something every single time, you know? So... I spent a lot of time with her, and when I when I was doing that, it was a guy named Lance who was managing, and I like Lance. I think he went and worked for Gabriel Iglesias, and uh, I Lance, think he's doing comedy. Yeah, now. I know he's doing comedy now. But Lance and and Ashley were friends, and they were hanging out in there. And Lance was the manager, and he could give him a spot, so he got a lot of spots. So Ashley kind of thought he was just going to walk in, but the person that wasn't validating Ashley, which I'm sorry, I listened to the community was the was the community. People like you, Earl. You may not have been there, but. All the rest of the comics, though, they're just like, you know, awful. David Taylor, atrocity. And David Taylor did not ever say Steve Byrne, Dub Davidoff, John Cabrera, Sebastian. He never called any of them those things. So point being is that the comics didn't like him being in there because they, did, they didn't look at him like he had what they were looking for. Well, I don't think he was respect, and I'm not. I don't know him. I don't think uh, he's not a bad guy. It's oh, I'm about sure it's, it's not about that. It's about when you step into the comedy store or the. It's not. It's Mitzi said sometimes because it's not always the nice store. <laughs> okay. In other words, it comes down to a simple thing. How about this one? Here's a here's a Mitzi line. This defines it. She says to me, she goes, "You want to be here? You want to be getting scheduled here?" She's question comes down to this. She goes, do you bring heat on the stage? She goes, well, do you? If you do, well, you can sit here. You can go up there. If you don't, and get the fuck out of the way. This is L.A. This is the big leagues. And I'm like looking at her once again, driving the van while she's talking, going, Jesus Christ, lady. I went, oh, my God, Mitzi. And she goes, what well, did I scare you? And I went, jeez, oh. <laughs> so prolific. But it, in a way, it's like it's cutting through all the sugar laced crap of everybody's imagination to the core fact. Get up and show us you're good up there and you'll be in here. That's how I think it should be. Get up there and show us you're good, and you will be in here. And, and not that, it, of course, with all the bringer shows and all this stuff, the thing I encourage from the other perspective with them is that if you're being given the opportunity, if you are being given the honor of going into the comedy store and going up on one of those stages, then use it to grow and get better. You don't have to always look at it like, oh, I wish I was being scheduled just by Adam. Hey, the fact that you get to go on the stages in any show and get to work out, that's the honor. You know, so it, that's why in a way with all the openness now, with all the different opportunities, even Kill Tony, Tony Hinchcliffe's awesome show, which is about people getting an opportunity to get on stage and getting comments back. People are into that stuff now. They're, this store is very much got all these things in place right now, which I'm very happy for, that are about growth. 
You get to go on stage in Tony's show and get some feedback. You still got the open mic that goes on there. And I've had these young comics come into the show that my friend Laura uh, uh, puts together and I go and I oversee. And I've had these young people come talk to me and they're just like, going, well, the store, you can't this and you can't that. I said, that's not true. I said, well, you going up there and what you, what's your set like? And that's when they stop and go, I go, what's your set like? Well, I didn't do very good. I said, well, well you're going to go up there and you want to get some attention. Don't you think even after the small amount of time you've been doing it, you couldn't show people that have never seen you before the best two minutes that you freaking put together? I was just working on some stuff. Hey, you're just working on some stuff. Then go. Maybe you get on. Maybe you don't. You know what I mean? I do. People, people can, it can happen for you if you get up there and show people what's going on. I have encouraged many comedians I talk to to at some point be a little bit mentally responsible that this is a performance. So it's not that you have to blow them away, but at least get done your set showing these people that you know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. I know how to make you laugh. Show yourself and then they'll remember you. That's another thing that came across, man. People, people make people laugh all the time. Mitzi told me, she goes, audiences are dumb. So people laughing at a comic, to her, did not mean they're good. Look at all the bringer shows. You ever sit in the back of one of those like, kind of hard things to get through? But do we not still hear laughter throughout the whole thing? Not huge laughter, but still laughter. And these people are laughing at awful, awful comedy, not put together well, all that stuff. You know, so... It, and, and the thing is, why, you know, so what's the result of that? Not memorable. You go you, a week later, you don't even remember anybody you saw barely at all. So just because someone's getting some laughs doesn't mean there's any substance to it. It's just the way that it is. I mean, what's more important, the, the size of the laugh that someone gets or just getting the laughs? I mean, it's, it's all musical. Feels right when it's right in our stomach. Do you appreciate... Gut. As a talent evaluator, in Sunday nights, Barubian Theater, uh, you play your music and you also give comics feedback if they wish to get it. Well, what it, what I've been doing there is I've just been poking my head out to. That's Labrean Sunset. Yeah, but just I've been poking my head out there just to be able to emerge with what's left from my experience, which is just to watch some comics, give them some feedback if they want it. But do you appreciate someone who just gets a laugh saying anything or a great joke that maybe didn't get a laugh? Uh, it's, it's all, there's no one set way. It's just the way that I look at it. I, I like either way if it's done well. I like, there's not, if there's one way to do it, man, it'd be boring. Everybody does it their different ways. You know, so that's part of what goes into scheduling in the mentality of it. Is you don't want people that deliver jokes the same way going back to back necessarily. You know, one of my one of my favorite, I thought, ingenious things I did was when I began to put Crystal Lee and Rick Ingram back to back. <laughs> that was great because Chris would do this whole big set and then Rick Ingram would go on and just be like, you know, he'd be like Monty, Monty Pythons and now for something completely different. <laughs> you know, that's 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 what I mean. But they're they're working in different ways. And that's also resetting the room. Oh, I mean, I, you know, I very much believe in, like, Adam, my first couple spots were opening. And I'm like, Jesus, I don't think I'm a very good opener. Oh, you're fine at it. You like to talk and you have clever things you think of. But it I, made me a better comic. Sure. It's, a, it's an exercise. Anybody can open that's good. I've seen it go on while people were already successful. I mean, I no, Nobody was there one night. Nobody was there. And Sebastian was there. I'll go on. And God, did he do great at opening. I said, man, you're a great opener. He goes, 
yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's point being is that it's something that once you know you're good at it, it's like getting the pebbles out of the hand in Kung Fu. It's time for you to move on. I mean, I prefer the late night. Uh... I mean, you know the late night, and I think it's good for you to do both. Going early, if I were to be scheduling you, and I would do the same thing with you, is to remind you to be a comedian who works within the realm of an idea of performance where you're being paid to do a job and you have a responsibility to start a set, do a set, end a set, address the people. You know what I mean? And that's what opening is. Incline energy versus decline energy. They really are on opposite ends of the scale. Oh, no, absolutely. It's it's maybe a better comic opening. And, uh, you know, now going on later, it's easier. So, uh, you know, I thank you to Adam for that. And uh, But let's get to your music because this has been one of the biggest uh, responses other than comics saying, ask him this, ask him that. You should have said this. Everyone's like, I had no idea about his music. And well, you- I know a lot of the comics, the the. The comics who I consider to be, I felt like, kind of like my friends, you know, from all the the paid regulars that Mitzi picked to the people that I went into and worked on. Andrew Santino, Theo Vaughn, and Brent Morin all kind of came in through Sunday Potluck. And my point reason I say that is they came in to work out, but I would also, they, you know, were young and I would been there for years and they would be like, you know, Andrew Santino, what's your story? I was like, well, I'm, I think I'm a singer and a guitar player. Goes, That's cool. I, Brent Moore and sing. I, I sing too, Brent. You really have a nice voice. I knew that stuff. You know what I mean? So I, so I feel like there's awareness that I did it. One time, Jeff Richards had me open up one of his shows. I did bad one time because my guitar wasn't plugged in. But the first time I did it, it came off right. I got, um, I got out and I played the Feel Your Way song, the one I would, would like to try to play on this if it's possible. Uh, the one I wrote with Mitzi and I went and I played and it's short. It's great about Feel Your Ways. It's powerful. It shows some singing range of mine. The words are unique because they're Mitzi sayings and it's also the best part, it's short. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's like two a, minutes. It's like a kiss song. Yeah, two, no, three minutes no, and you're out. Nobody wants to listen to some long, gated thing. They really don't. But um, yeah, I played that song once at the beginning and when I got done, I went back to the cover booth and I got a phone call from a certain person and I won't say their name, but they called up and they were just like, oh, my God, I had no idea you could sing like that. It's like I don't even you don't even look like the same person to me anymore. Well, I'm going to try I was and like, OK, you know, Tommy, I don't know how well this is going to do, but I'm going to play feel your way right now. I'm going to put my mic Right by the speaker. It might not be the greatest quality. Oh, well, you don't need to do that. Well, let me, let's just play a few seconds of it just so pe- people can uh, get it. And we're going to go. This is a, you can go on SoundCloud under Tom Moore Songwriter. He's got six tracks up. It's a little bit of feel your way. And don't complain about the uh, audio. Listen, if you guys think you can do a better job, <laughs> I tell you what. <laughs> Uh, what you can do is you can buy the thousands of dollars of equipment that I've done. <laughs> you can, uh, through the grace of my good friend Laura, have her set up Tommy coming over to your house, and you can do a better job than I can. Until then, uh, suck it and listen to a good song and uh, or buy me a speaker system. <laughs> this is Tom Morris, Feel Your Way. Stand close 
I like that. I played that for Mitzi once. I did. I played it for her, and she said to me, she goes, I've never been so honored. Well, she should be, because I like the song. But, but I can never tell you that while you're working at the comedy store, because I never wanted you to think, God, he's just kissing my ass to get a spot. No, I don't have thought that. That's but, you know, I just, I'm shy. But before we get into anything else, guys, uh, I know the audio quality of that <laughs> possibly wasn't the best. So go to soundcloud.com backslash Tom dash Morris dash songwriter <laughs> and uh, listen to it on your great sound system. Yeah. So uh, Tony Hinchcliffe was a big supporter of that song. I, I, I uh, think I wrote that song uh, maybe in like started, started writing it in 2006 and then 2007, no, I, I, I wrote it earlier than that. I had parts of it in 2004 even, because I remember Luca Polanca hearing it, and he was still around. But I finished it up, and I played it. I would practice up there in the phone room. And Tony told me one time, he said to me, he goes, I really like that song. And I told him, it's like, I didn't tell everyone what was going on with my song. He was like the first person I was like, you know, I've comprised that of things that Mitzi said. And he was like, I can totally see that. I mean, if you, just the words and like the, the example is the beginning of it. Stand close to the fire. I just remember I was driving down the road and I go, so uh, kidding with her. Like I go, what's it take to make it, Mitzi? She goes, well, the first thing you got to do is you got to stand close to the fire. You know, like you got to be where it's happening. And oh, I, yeah. Then that's one thing she said, you know. And then, uh, you know, um, she said, uh you know, you n you never know things unless you begin doing them. So that's what she was a big thing about stand-ups. Like she goes, there's so many people out there that wonder about it. She goes, the eighth grade teacher. She goes, the guy at the supermarket. She goes, well, the thing is, I feel bad for them is why are they wondering? Why don't they just get up and do it? You don't know unless you do it. And so I've got a thing. Maybe you lose. Maybe you win. You never know unless you begin. Because she's like, you got to begin, you know? And then uh, she said one time we were in the car, she goes, sometimes it's not easy for people to open up their heart because that's the only way you can make a new start in your life. You have to open your heart, not your mind. And I was like, you're so right, Mitzi. So that's why it's like, say, open up your heart. And then one of her other lines too, which I thought was important is uh, she goes, uh, I was like, I'm not, I was talking about me. She's just sitting, she goes, what are you going to do? She goes, you got to world needs to know who you are, cookie jar. What are you going to do? I said, well, I'm working for you. She goes, that's okay, but what are you going to do? So I'm not always sure. And then she goes, you alone know the way. That's one of the lines in it. You alone know the way, because that's what she said. So that's why I, I like that song. And then played it, I told you at the Jeff Richards benefit and, and I recorded it and I just, I don't know. I, I just feel it's, and then not to go into a long, it's just real quick. Please, I, I did Tommy, a, don't, no, yeah, but I did real a music, quick. I did a music showcase thanks to this guy named Marty Losner. He's a nice guy and he let me showcase for some people. And I played that song from, and the guy said he thought it was a hit. This is a guy that's like done a lot of stuff. And I'm not saying he's going to be, but the fact that he liked it and what he liked is before I started it. And he's a guy looked like he's maybe my age or a little older. And I said, I worked at the comedy store for 13 years. I met Mitzi Short. Boy, he looked up right away, right away. And I said, I wrote this song comprising some of the things she said. And he was just like this, you know what I mean? And then when I got done playing it, I just played on my chair, like in front of him, because there was these other really good girl singers with amps and everything. So I, I kind of already was like, I'm going to be a joke to these guys. And no, man, he was like, go plug your guitar in on the stage and sing that over a mic. 
So I feel like there's the thing I like about it. And I, I'm not, this is not me selling the song. This is me talking about why the song, like Tom Petty says, these songs come to you. Why the song is, is I, is I would have never written that song that way and put those words together if I didn't meet and know Mitzi Shore. You know, that's what I want people to do when they go to the store. So I want them to just know that she like what she said, she gave birth to the place. So it's there now for all the comics to enjoy and for people to enjoy. I, you know, and I, I know that many people, but God, it started bothering me my last couple of years there meeting young people. that didn't even never heard of her. It was like, that's not right. Not right that they don't, they haven't heard of her. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with people thinking that Polly owns and runs the comedy store because he's a celebrity and he's a comedian and it fits very well. And I don't, and I don't want people to be corrected that that is. I just want her legacy to be known at, that she didn't just own the comedy club. She added her artistic vision in to speaking people, to give them the freedom to create their own platform. It's, it's very, very important that she is not forgotten. Now, one of the things I was wanting to do, and I, I worked on very hard, but was not able to do it because I'm not, I have the right personality and knowledge in my mind to sell, but I don't have the technical ability to get through a door, is that Mitzi and I had, lo- had talked about many of her ideas for movie projects and television projects at the store. She had these ideas too, and one of her main things she hang- hung on to was a movie about the strike, showing the comedy store from about 1977 to about 1981 or 1982. Now, what's significant about that, from what I learned from her, is that the strike, where the comedians were demanding to be paid for main room shows and all this other stuff, but the strike got media attention and brought focus on the comedy store and therefore is believed to be one of the key things that initiated the comedy club boom all over the United States. Because you had Tom Dreesen was one of the main... It's not even just about Dreesen. Uh, Dreesen's very important, but it's, it's the fact that David Letterman and Jay Leno... And Robin Williams and all these people, Steve Martin, and all these people were here at the store at this magical time. Mitzi wants to show how it happened, the drama that goes in the middle of it. She used to say to me, she'd be like, there's mystery, there's intrigue, there's sex, there's drugs. What a story, huh? I went, yeah. She goes, it's all there. And I came up with talking with her about a way to bring it to a close. And she liked this. So you show this thing happening, okay? And by the way, her casting choice for herself is Julia Louise Dreyfus. That's who Mitzi sees playing her. She goes, be one of the meatiest roles of her life. Because it would be great for her to play a character like Mitzi. And I could see her doing it. Um, but the idea is, is that you show Mitzi go through this whole experience. And at the end, near the end of the movie, you show her sitting down with Argus and Argus is, you know, I, I wrote out this little scene one time and I read it back to her and she goes, that's great. And it's, you, if you have Argus sitting down and he goes, geez, Missy, what have, you know, I can't believe we just went through all that. What do we do now? And she goes, well, I'm going to do what I do. And he goes, what's that? She goes, I, I can pick them. I just can. I know when they got it. And at the moment that that's going on, she is looking at a showcase and the young person on stage is Jim Carrey. So she even reads and says, who is this one? This is Jim Carrey from Yuck Yucks, right? And as she's looking at the stage and sees him on stage, she goes, like this kid. You see this kid? This kid's going to be a star. And right then, 
you have you hear the definition. You sure? You sure? And you flash to now. Mitzi's sitting in her backyard with her sunglasses on, with her floppy hat on, like she does, remembering it all. And Alfred go or whoever the other person. It's time for you to go to the store. She goes for what? He goes. It's time for you to see the showcase. And then the ones she liked to say about people trying to showcase the wannabes. <laughs> <laughs> and then they took her in. And I thought that right then would be a great way to sow the credits of who she's found. And then she only had one person that should direct it. She, and that's why I think even Neil Brennan wanted to came to the store about doing something. Peter and Paul are very careful with their legacy and they should be. And Scotty and Sandy, they're all involved in that decision-making process. But uh, her vision is Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson was there. Many people don't know that Craig T. Nelson and Barry Levinson were a comedy duo. Of course. Well, many young people, there are other people, they don't know that. So her point was about Barry was that Barry would not have to go interview people to learn what happened. She goes, he was there. So that's what I would dreamed of, that HBO and Barry Levinson would come and make a movie about the comedy store, the strike from 79, uh, 77 to 81. Now, understand, I know they're doing this show right now and Jim Carrey's Jim producing Carrey. and stuff. Yeah, but it's still not, an, it's not a real life story. It's, a, it's, it's assimilated characters and that's fine and everything like that, but that's still not the story. That's still not Mitzi Shore's name being accredited with what happened. This is an incredible story she told me about during that strike. She said she remembered one night crying in the bathtub with Tim Thomerson comforting her. She goes, and here I am. She goes, she goes, I'm sitting here. She goes, but her point being is that it wasn't, it be, what did not become about that situation that you would think. It wasn't a sexual situation. It, it, not that she would deny that she didn't have them. That's not what I mean. She was pointing out that it was that hard for her. And David Letterman's famous thing where he went out and picketed with everybody after he did a show and it, it hurt her. You know, and, and she, she said she called and she goes, David, why did you do that to me? And he says, you know, very important defining line for David Letterman. God bless him. He goes, Mitzi, these guys are going to be the are going to be friends of mine for the rest of my life. He had to stand with his friends. He still recognized her. Oh, my God. She told me the story about going to New York to see him. And he stood in a whole huge office with a bunch of people. And he said, everybody, I want you to meet, you know, Mitzi Shore. He goes, without her, none of you would have jobs. That's what he said to the whole group. Mitzi goes, that was pretty good, huh? <laughs> I was happy to hear these moments for her. And then the one I talked to you about on the phone real quick about the Elvis thing, you know? Oh, please. That, that, only what I know. I know Sammy knows better than I and even the Shore family. But Mitzi said that Elvis loved having her backstage and he liked seeing her when Sammy was opening for Elvis. And she told me something I thought was very interesting and very simplistic about Elvis. She goes, the thing about Elvis was, she goes, he was sad. So why was he sad, Mitzi? He didn't get to say goodbye to his mother. And I understood. Some people would be looking at him like, well, you know, that already happened. You need to get over that. Sometimes you never do. And he never did. And I think the thing about her is that she, instead of trying to talk him out of it, she let him be like, I understand. Like, that's okay. And he liked that, that she was, gave him that feeling. And plus, too, she identified him as a great talent, which is what I feel she did. Her talent was an, is innate. It's born in her, you know? Why do you 
What do you think makes comics sad? Family life? Oh, real life. It can be. It's a it's a it's an interesting profession. It may have its downfalls, but it also has its great things too. But it has to be the people that do really well at it, and uh, the people we know that succeed really well really work hard at it. They, they for for people thinking they just go up and talk on the microphone for an hour and get a bunch of money and go home and have to do nothing. Boy, they sure could be any further from the truth. I wish it was like that. It isn't like that at all. You guys have to get up every day. Remember Neil Brennan doing a bit about talking about it, takes a sip of coffee, turns his phone on, <laughs> and, then, and then that's it. It's gone from that moment on. You know what I mean? Tweeting, writing, posting, everything all day long to keep himself in the, in the comedic no, you know? Because nowadays... Uh... You know, it's Facebook, Twitter, uh, Vine videos, Periscope is the new thing right now. I mean... Uh, well, I just like to say that that's great. That uh, If that's what it is, and understand the game you're playing in and work within those parameters. I, I've mentioned before that I've, I've been writing something. I, I feel compelled to. I'm not sure how I'm going to go about uh, putting it out there. Is this Mondays with Mitzi? Yeah, it's, and it's, it's, uh, I call it a guide. Its title, once again, is Mondays with Mitzi, An Insider's Guide to the Craft of Stand-Up Comedy. And it's really, I got, I was uh, like the talent coordinator there for nine years. And I think that's how many chapters I have. I don't want it to be thick, it's not real thin. The chap, the first one talks a little bit about the main characters. The last one does an, an epilogue on she and I and, and the comparison in the two. But the in-between part is like guide chapters. It talks about different short things that are help comments. Like we talked about the talent, work ethic, and desire. I call that the big three. You know? And uh, the you in your comedy. That's one of the chapters. Um, be ready. She was all about being ready. Did you see comics uh, who weren't ready? Yeah, we're getting ready. But when she means ready, it's like ready, ready is when your opportunity comes and you're ready for it. When Al Magical got his chance to get onto TV and start doing anything even more, he was ready. And that's why it all clicked for him. When Chris D'Elia got on Whitney with Whitney, he was ready. Ready to be seen that way, you know? Um, yeah, she's just all about being ready. She's, she, her big one was Richard Pryor. She said that when, what she said to me one time, she goes, when Richard Pryor's moment came, he was ready. And that's why the world took such notice. You know, and you know he's he's still doing sets his whole life, but his his nineteen seventy eight, you know, oh. Richard Pryor Live, is probably the greatest comedic stand up film in history. I remember being a teenager seeing it because I'm that old. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Tom. No, no, you're not, dude. I'm pretty close. You know, I I was the old man at the store. That's that's part of what I I I realized. I worked in nightclubs for so many years, thirty years altogether. That was the only part that was becoming isolating for me is another night with a bunch of people going out and doing their thing. And I and it's not that I don't enjoy seeing that or anything like that, but I dare to say maybe some life of life has passed me by. But you've you know, seen it for 30 years. I, I, I understand human behavior. I do. But I mean, to work at a male review club, I mean... The, well, that wasn't a club. It was doing shows in different places. That that came about like as a weird thing. And then it was like a, is like kind of like a, I, of course, I'm slightly, I'm cynical slightly myself. And to me, it was kind of stupid. So that's why when I started doing it, I took on a different perspective and it just backfired in my face in the sense that then everybody wanted me because the girls liked it even more. I almost went over on the side with the girls to point out to them that they might be thinking that this is ridiculous, but that they were missing the whole point of why they were there, 
which is just to let off steam. And this is what I would always encourage them to be like. You know, I remember Daytona was really hard for me. Some spring breaks. Behind you, got eighteen to twenty-two year olds. You don't Whoa. come out with you don't come out with a mail you don't come out with a mail review at eighteen twenty-two year olds without them looking at it like it's the stupidest thing ever. They're too they're too above that shit. Oh, they are. So I would have to mentally work on them in order to come around, to let go, and have fun, and it worked. But that got me a lot of gigs because I could fix any room. I understand emceeing and hosting is a big part of what I am. I do wonder sometimes, I do actually wonder sometimes if I shouldn't have listened to Mitzi and done stand-up because she was, she asked me twice and she even pointed out when she talked to me the second time, she goes, this isn't like me, you know, I don't ask people if they want to do something like this twice. You might be missing something. See, the problem with you is you're so talented that you don't know which one to do. So she said to me, and she was, my mother kind of was saying the same thing. I got a lot of awards for acting and stuff when I was young. I got a lot, I'm good at it. I'm natural. I'm a, it, it's, it, even though there's a lot of thought into it and emotion, it's like what Harrison Ford says. It's pretending. And I'm good at pretending if I need to. And even working at the comedy store, you have to understand that part of what I was there, that's why I didn't even care about my last name is it's a character to me. It's not all I am. So a part of working at the comedy store and being Tommy at the comedy store is playing a character. You know, I brought Tommy from T-Birds in Florida, who's all about you and what's going on with you and us having a good night and this being your night off. You need to relax and let go and it's okay giving people constant permission to go ahead and have fun and stuff like that. I brought part of that personality in when I first started at the store to try to help it as a club because as a club, it was negative. I mean, the customers were being treated horribly. It was bad. Okay, that's the part I was working on is I was just having these conversations with the customers. How you guys doing? You know what I mean? That's why Dean was on board with me. He was like, oh, my God, because I was making connection. We had to start like at the basic square again of how you're treating each group of people each night, you know? Because when you first got there, it was basically, you know. Well, like, it's because you had switched managers. It has nothing to do with the comics. It's not anything to do with the comedians. But, I mean, didn't you have a fair amount of, you know, I don't want to say faded stars from the 80s still kind of hanging on. And you know, I don't yeah, want to mention Mitzi it. called those people the people from the 70s and the 80s her guys. So she could not say no. What I ended up doing is having the hard position of having to tell some of them that it was coming to a point where they weren't going to be able to get that many sets anymore. That was hard. Those are hard conversations to have. And the reason it worked is because of my age. Here I was in my 40s and all you guys are all in your 20s and 30s. So I come to them and I say to them, you know, here I am. I grew up watching you. I know you're great, but this isn't 1978 or 1987 anymore. I got all these young people and I got to get them in there. I would tell them the facts. Nightclubs, I primarily trafficked, even the comedy club, by 21 to 38-year-olds. They go out the most. And it's nothing against the 35 to 60-year-olds, but they're doing something else, man. They're raising their families. They're on a trip. They've already been out to clubs. They go out some, but not all the time. So if you're targeting that people, who are you supposed to target them with? Someone who used to be somebody a long time ago? It's survival. You know, this is what I was... My theme as the talent coordinator at the comedy store was innovative comedy. Innovative comedy. 
And it took Argus Hamilton to tell me after I've been saying that for years, out of nowhere, you can see the same person all the time and never have that conversation. I said, yeah, well, my theme is innovative comedy. He goes, really, Tommy? Well, yeah, he goes, that's what Mitzi used to say, too. So it made me realize, like, I didn't know that's what she used to say, but I'm, at least I'm in the right place. It's the responsibility of a place like that to show people what's coming up next, too. Not right. just what's been. So like someone, and I'll mention two names. You don't. I'm not trying to get a reaction I, out of I, you. I don't have anything probably against any of them. I just tell you what I think of them comedically. That's. But it. I mean, like you have to when you first came in, get the Steve Burns, the Steve Renazizis, the Ingrams, the you know people like that, and someone like say a Barry Diamond, uh, yeah, uh, huge, huge comic from the '80s. It's like, dude, we got to get these young kids in. I mean, it didn't happen that, with Barry for a long time. It just had happened through experiences, you know. Uh, everybody coming into the store is a certain way. I just push certain people in different ways, and they know that I did. Steve Anazizi opened his own door. He and I were doing a lot of the same type of tasks, and there's just a few people that drove Mitzi home and helped her go inside and even to bed if she needed to. And there's Ari Shafir, Steve Anazizi, myself, and Luca Polanco. There's not a lot, but I don't blame her. She can't have, you know, I mean, you have to know who they are. So Steve uh, worked out. She made him an MC. He became his own thing. Steve Byrne, I, I think Mitzi really liked Steve Byrne from the beginning, but I liked him even more. So I fudged him in where I could. Uh, I had said a story last week about me putting him in Argus's spot, which really was like, that made me go like, oh my God, because Steve Byrne at 9.15 in his show, he blew it up. He was, it was great. It was a great way for her to see that he had qualities. Um, uh, you know, there were certain things she put in place. John Caparula gets a spot every night of the week. That was Mitzi. That's just the way it stays. Uh, Maz Dubrani gets a spot every night of the week. Uh, um, so how do you go Bobby, about telling someone like, and I don't mean just Barry Diamond specifically, yeah, but Barry you know, Diamond like a the, Tim Thomerson. Hey, uh, uh, Tim Thomerson never wanted to work out. That's a lot of these things. They, they don't do it anymore. I think the ones that bothered, not bothered me, but the hardest for me were people that came back out of the woodwork after the years I put in there and it was getting busier and there was a buzz out here in New York. There was the places I worked out in there. It's cool and all that stuff. That's when some of the old timers started right. coming back. And I had to sit there and play deflect. You know, I, dude, man, I got some people at that booth yelling at me. I know I can come off high strung and all this stuff, but I remember being at that booth being totally sedate a lot. Because people are screaming at me. I don't know what I'm doing. And fuck you. And do you know who I am? And that this is not any of the people that are most likely even listening to this. These, well, are, people, these are people that have been around, around a long time ago. You know? And have minor things that happen. And I can't deny they do well. You know? But it's not always about doing well. Uh, is it? I, I'd say the person that got the, the probably the most disappointed, who was the most disappointed with me because of the way I reacted. And a good example of this story is Jackson Purdue. All right? Jackson Purdue does a good job. He's a quality comedian. I just did not find him fitting in with this, this Dove Davidoff and, uh, and uh, Steve Byrne and Sebastian and Bobby Lee and Bill Burr, John Caparulo, Metamed, Maz Dibrani, Aaron Cater, Brett Ernst, Whitney Cummings, Eliza Schlesinger, Owen Smith, Ian Edwards, you know, uh, the group that I was doing in the middle 2000s. And then, it, then it's like, okay, well, now these, some of these guys are on the road. There's more space to go, well, wait a minute. Now we got Tony Hinchcliffe and okay, right. we got Brent Morin and we got Andrew Santino and we got Theo Vaughn. There's a guy like Russell got, Peters. Uh, oh, Russell comes back around. Russell's already royalty. He's not that same thing. He's already a super world star. They came in and, 
and was curious about the store, went up on the OR stage the first time I ever saw him and showed everybody there in eight minutes why he is Russell Peters. He figured out the OR stage in eight minutes. In the middle of it, made one small comment. He goes, oh, okay. I just have to get myself a little... Like, in other words, he was commenting on how he was fi- figuring out how to work the OR, but it took him eight minutes. So my point being is that there's always something new like that to come in for the new kids in between the big stars. Big stars coming in is something that will always happen there and you want there. You know, big stars fit in great shows, but uh, it's also nice to have the innovative ones, you know? Oh, for sure. The OR should be an innovative show. I decided that I was going to go by a word Mitzi was calling it called the hippest. So I digested that and I decided no comedy veterans pretty much in that show. The only comedy veteran, he's not a comedy veteran because he's so current, would be Jeff Garland. Right. But Jeff Garland fits in really well because he comes out there. He actually, because he's been doing comedy so long, likes to be interactive with the crowd. Well, early in the OR show, that's okay. He's a huge television star. He has some funny interactions. People can all look at it a different way. Comedians can say they don't like it or they can say this and that. I look at it like he went up and he had a warm exchange with everybody and now it's time to bring on the show. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I just felt like that's what I was trying to do with that OR. And they still do it now. It's, it's, it's the hippest. And then, come on, with Joe Rogan back into a sweet spot in the middle of it, forget about it. Oh, it's amazing. And then it's, Joey it's, Diaz. And, well, Joe uh, Diaz fits with Joe Rogan. They, that's, that, those guys, that, that slides together. They've worked together so much. There's an energy between those two guys that fits. And that's part of it. You know? I mean, I will say Ian Edwards had to go on after Joey Diaz the other night. And I was like, wow, this is going to be tough. Because, I mean, Joey had one of the best sets I'd ever seen in the OR. It's great. And Ian killed. It's like, that was yeah. like, wow, I got a lot of work to do. Uh, Ian's a, he's awesome. He's part of the whole thing. He's, he is because he is. i just so impressed with that group that Mitzi brought in and some of the people I worked on. They really all had the qualities. You know, talent, work ethic, and desire. They right. make it happen. They really, really do. Right, well. um, so I just thought, what? It, that's why I think the store is the part of the way it is. It has a really great grouping in it. And I'm glad you're part of it, Earl, because you fit right in there. She wants brilliant comics who think, and that's where you fit in. Well, I was too dumb to quit. So there's not a lot of plan Bs in you my come, life. Come this far. So, but before... Uh, and I'm honored to be up there. It's, I mean, I love the Improv and Laugh Factory, but the store is like mecca to me. It's just yeah, they're all great clubs. All the clubs in the whole country are great because they are supporting the beautiful experience of a live audience coming in and watching comedians perform their craft. Which is, you know, one day when we lose Mitzi, I would think that the perfect epitaph for her is what one of her ploys is: stand-up comedy is an art form. That's where her big ploy is. It's to be appreciated that way. And she felt the hardest of all, Earl, because you're, she goes, they're all alone up there. Yes, they we don't are. even have their guitar like you. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think if you're in a shitty uh, band, you know, you could turn around if you're the singer and blame the drummer. But, uh, you know, if you're a shitty comic, there's no one to turn around and blame other than the curtain so uh i think it's a lot more pressure on a comic uh but before you know the tape's about to run out sorry no please tommy don't have it away i've never said this before there might be a part three oh man and i'm not i mean we haven't even i've got and i showed you about 25 questions well i had a couple of them before we stopped i've gotten to four of them so okay uh, what uh i mean 
What's next for Tommy Morris? See, that's I'm not sure. I have some things that I've been working on. One of the one of the reasons that Laura and I like to work together at the theater and stuff too is she and she's introduced me to there has been a reality show producer that has shown some interest in the perspective of showing how people come, become comedians. Of course, you know, you would think all these would be done at a comedy club and all that stuff, but the interest has just been around what the craft that I actually am sitting here with that I'm not sure what to do with, which is the craft of comedic development. Um, you of course have the have to have the right setting in order to do it. Um, I'm not, I I've spent many years in a club doing it. I would think there was an evolution to what the next level for me should be. I've been being encouraged to maybe find a way where people can uh, submit things to me and I can give some feedback. Um, I just get a good feeling from talking to comics about what's going on with them, you know, but I, it may have been early for me to try to do something like that when I first left, but I feel like enough time's gone by that the thing that, that has interested me the most this past week is the young people that are wanting to hear more of these slight philosophical ideals in how becoming a comic versus someone telling them how to do it. You know, some, some guidelines in your mind to be able to, that's why I'm not sure if this book thing is, you know, I've have some, I might be able to go do that. I just, I don't know, you know, and then the music, I, somebody's been trying to position me to do that. And then I've been offered some things in some other places. I just have not, I, I have not decided exactly what it's going to be. And this know? kind of bookends on that. Uh, do you see yourself ever working at another comedy club in LA? I don't know if I would, I, I've always felt like I was only going to do that for Mitzi because of the way that it was set up to do. I don't know if I am really an agent and a booker the way that someone could be, but I definitely could see myself in LA working with looking at talent and looking for talent, that, that kind of way. Which is the, I would think that would, and I don't know what anyone would ever want to do with me, but I'm saying I would think that would be more in tune with either a network or something. You know, like I had thought to myself when I first stopped at the store that I felt this thing going in my mind that I should try to talk to Netflix since they're developing to get into a company like that that is growing and to create a department where I go out and I look for talent and find them people to bring to their their next level. I mean, come on, Chelsea Handler left her show to go be a host on networks. I mean, they haven't even, they've shown us a lot, but they got that whole feeling with them like, hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. You know, like they're really gearing up. Oh. So that's kind of what I thought. But in the same light too, to go into a position where I beat on people's doors and I compete, it's, that's not necessarily the way I am too. It would have to work from the parameters of somebody finding what I am and who I am interesting me talking to them and then us deciding how I can help. My life is about helping something, not just about doing something just because you're doing it. So you could possibly see yourself in a role like, say, a Barry Katz. Not really, because Barry manages and creates things. He's a real go-getter that way. What Barry gave me validation for is knowing that I'm an artist. I told him that Mitzi said that to me. I don't know if I said that to you, that part about Mitzi's identity of me. She just said to me one time, I said, or I, go, I don't know why I don't leave Mitzi. This is like 2008. I don't know why I don't leave Mitzi and go try to get a job in a network or a studio and take this craft you taught me, try to make a lot of money. And she goes, looked at me and she goes, you're an artist, the real thing. You care more about what you do than what you have. And I remember I looked at her like this and then she looked at me and she goes, you didn't know that about yourself, did you? 
So I've never heard it put like that before. She goes, you're going to begin to feel a lot better now. And I did. And that's part of where the devotion came in. As I had this woman in the middle of me always thinking that there was something wrong with me, but now I'm not typical. Her thing was like, just the whole journey talking to me was like, Tommy, no, you're beautiful. You're an artist. You're not ever going to be typical. That's what I've identified you as. And you're working with me at the store because I'm enjoying more than I do than what I have. I'm not getting rich and you know buying some huge home and evolving in my life. No, I was excited because we were creating something and making the comedy store healthy again. We're all the, and then sitting back by 2013, 2014 and looking at not only her class, but then Whitney and Chris and Eliza and Brent Morin and, and Andrew Santino and Gerard Carmichael and Eric Andre and Hannibal Burris. And I've gone out and told these people, I want them Chelsea Peretti. I walked backstage like I was hypnotized. She said one of my favorite lines I've ever had said to me. I said to her, I was saying, you should be a paid regular. She's looking at me like, like what? And I said, I know you don't know who I am. I just come walking back and start talking about talking to you. And she goes, oh, I heard of you, but I thought you were a myth. <laughs> it made me feel good. You know what I mean? Like, that's the store. It's like, you know, they got this weird guy working there. Doesn't have a Facebook page. <laughs> that, you can't, that you can't get in touch with him. And you might see him walking around. And if you can't find him, he might be out back with some comics. <laughs> well, you were met. You would be in the booth, which was like your throne. And then the OR cover booth was my office. Polly said that to me once. And that's the truth. That was my office. You wouldn't be there. And then I remember once you grabbed me by the arm in the hallway and said, uh, I, I'll, I'll try and do an impression of you, but it's, I'm not, I'm no Melissa Villas in New York, but it's like, well, what's your deal? I mean, I see you hanging around a lot. I like you late night. And then I turned around and you had gone. It's like, it was like you were just this mythical figure and then yeah. I couldn't find you the rest of the night. I, I just, I lived it, eating and breathing. That's why it was hard for me because I was, I lived it. I lived it. I, all the phone day long, the phone rang. It was either a comedian or it was the store with something that needed to be changed every day, all day, even when I was off. And I, and I have to admit, I loved it. Well, no, so I, I missed it. I miss it. But I also know too, that things have to evolve. And that's why I just say that everything I talked to you about, everything I've done or where I, any knowledge I carry, it has to be used somehow. And that's what I'm trying to put together. Well, guys, Sunday nights, I, he's not there every night, but if you're a comic and you want some stage time and some feedback, it's the Barubians Theater on Sunset and La Brea. Uh, and if you please uh, go on SoundCloud and go on soundcloud.com backslash Tom dash Morris, Morris. <laughs> don't go on Morris uh, dash songwriter. Uh, and he's got six tracks up there. And uh, just check them out and uh, support them. And uh, Earl, I appreciate you having me in here to talk with you and talking about some of these things. I it's important. It's definitely gives a sense of closure. Oh well, I'm glad because uh, you know I need a closure with you myself to a degree. Yeah, but you were you were you were just a person that's uh, coming out of the bullpen. That's all, and now you're already out on your own and you're doing your own thing. But you've been marinating in the store for a long time. There's a great thing about people that marinate in there a long time 
Oh, yeah. You know, like even even little Esther Pavitsky, she just danced around with Don at the end of her shows for years and was in the band when you were in the band and stuff like that. So she evolved into being comfortable in there by being in there in a lot of different ways. Well, so. I will have you back a third time. I mean, I, I'm staring at 17 questions I didn't get to. Well, ask uh, me one last one before we get off, and then we'll end it. All right. This this will be a fun way to end it, because I know we've had some serious topics. And, uh, you know, you were at the store 13 years yeah. Uh, you. I mean, I've been there uh, on and off for probably 10, a lot of crazy nights. Uh, what was, and this is a question a lot of people have asked me to ask you, what was the wildest night you saw there where you're like, I can't believe I'm seeing this? Doesn't have to be a what you know. Just was there? Was it a, maybe a Jim Carrey popping in? Was it a? Uh, uh, I'll see. I have to say two because two things. Please hit two. The first one was. Maybe uh, and Harris Pete was still a doorman there, so maybe it's 2004, 2005, maybe 2004. <clears throat> I'm standing in the OR cover booth. <clears throat> Harris Pete's up there with me. I look down the stairs, and up running up the stairs comes this man. And as I was starstruck, it was Robin Williams. And he came up, and Harris, because he knows him, greeted him warmly. <clears throat> and Robin was like, oh, Harris, I'm so glad to see you. He felt comfortable. So they went in and said he was going to go on next. I didn't really talk to him. <clears throat> he went in and he went ready to go on when they, when Jeff Scott does a, a very, uh, and a cool thing when someone's really big, he'll bring a piece of paper over and it has a dramatic buildup. So the person on the stage, and I do not remember what it is. I'm sorry. Um, might've been Whitney Cummings. She might've been a different time though, but they open it up. They say his name. And when they said Robin Williams name, the audience, all of them, and there was maybe, you know, 100 people in there, they jumped up so quick and yelled so loud that I had never heard anything and seen anything exactly like that. Now, mind you, I'd already seen Chris Rock pop in. I'd seen Andrew Dice Clay pop in. I've seen a lot of people, and they get a big round of applause and stuff. And whatchamacallit, uh, 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 Harris Pete threw open the curtain, and he goes, now that's a star. Like, I, I couldn't believe the magnitude of it. And then one thing that Robin did is before he left, he came over to me and he goes, would you do me a favor if you talk to Mitzi Shore? And I said, yes. He goes, tell her I came back. And I mean, Harris told me he hadn't been there since like 90 or 91. So it was 12 years or something. And the other one was the Joe Rogan and Carlos Mencia fight. I just knew that something was going on in that room that night that was bad. But set the tone because a lot of people have just seen. Uh, let me set it up for you. Well, uh, let me set up how it went on. I mean, it's, it's Joe Rogan is even though I have expressed that I didn't like that he was angered by you know what happened in the result of it, he was not at fault. He went on. He just brought uh, Kirk Fox on, and Kirk Fox went on to do a set. Now Kirk was writing for Carlos Mencia at the time, so Kirk felt. I mean, Carlos kind of felt like he could jump up there and grab the mic from Kirk, and he did. He went up and grabbed it, and that's one thing. You don't, as a comic, go take the microphone out of the comic's hand. So that was the first thing he should have never done. I would never even, I have not even to this day ever seen another comic run up on stage and take the microphone from a performing comic during their set, their time, right? And then he started saying all this stuff and took on Joe Rogan. And And then the first thing I thought when I heard him do that was exactly what I commented last week. Like, oh my God, you're going to take on Joe Rogan? Why would you do that? You know, 
I'd already heard the talk about the name change and everything. It's, I wasn't mad about it or anything like that. But, you know, that just went right down to like everything about you is not real, Carlos. And then it got ugly. Right. And running around and trying to turn the cell phones off and all that stuff. And then Joe didn't talk to me afterwards, but Carlos did. And he said he felt really bad about it. I just remember me saying to him, I go, then why did you do it? You know? So that was a bad, those are two moments that were like, uh, kind of like blow me away. And then I, you know, uh, I'd say one last, I have to do a third one is uh, Billy Idol coming in. Oh, that's, and that's Billy funny. Idol comes up, his daughter comes running up and she's like, oh, my dad's coming. He's kind of famous, you know, so I don't want him to be like, and he comes out and I went, Billy Idol, oh my God. I said, thank you for my youth. He goes, oh, you're welcome. What's your name? I said, my name's Tom. Oh, nice to meet you, Tom. And she goes, yes, I wanted to bring my dad here. He's never been here before. And I looked at Billy Idol and I looked at her. And then I said to Billy Idol, I go, you've never been here before? And he kind of looked like this and went, there's a picture at Mitzi Shore's house of you kissing her on the side of the face that she has framed. He goes, oh, I've been here before. She goes, Dad, why didn't you tell me? He goes, I didn't want to ruin your surprise. <laughs> so I thought that was cool. That's it. Sorry. Well, no, listen, I, you guys know I'm a huge Billy Idol fan and his guitar player, Steve Stevens. That's a good way to, uh, uh, you know, end. You never know who you're going to see at the comedy store. No, you don't. That's what's cool about the place. And, uh, God bless it. It's just the greatest place on earth. So, uh, Tommy, you will be back for round three. If you want me, Earl, I'd love to come and talk some more. No, I mean, uh, you, you are such an interesting character. And like I told you before we did the first one, whether uh, you are loved or disliked, people will listen. And that's... <laughs> As a podcast host, shamelessly, that's what I want. And you will uh, listen to his stories, and uh, you know, hopefully, you listen to his music. And whether you like him or not, you know, you have to respect his opinion because he was there. So, uh, and it's not like me and Tommy were like best friends at the store. So I'm pretty impartial. Uh, you know, I always enjoyed our. I remember once we had a hour-long conversation about David Lee Roth's solo albums. Uh, that's a conversation that David Lee Roth probably can't have. I met David Lee Roth walking up the stairs of the OR alone, too. He came in to see Dove Davidoff. He came up there. I used to have his poster on the wall when I was a kid, and there he was, and he, I just said, he goes, what's the show like tonight? And I went, oh, it's really good. And then I said, Dove Davidoff, he goes, he's a friend. And then, he, then I, the way I met David Lee Roth is he goes, what's your name? I said, Tom. He goes, Dave. <laughs> it was great. All right. So, guys, uh, thank you so much for the love and support for the first episode. Uh, it, it exceeded anything I thought. And you wanted round two? Well, here it is. So, listen to it. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. You know, we're on SoundCloud and iTunes. And, uh, you know, I've never said this before, but Tommy will be back. Not for more, but back for three. <laughs> so uh, thank you guys very much. I really appreciate all the support. Uh, and I knew this was a great uh, get as an interview when I have a room comics coming up to me saying, dude, I had one last night at the comedy store say to me, I've never listened to a podcast in my life. I listened to the whole thing last night. <laughs> so uh, if you like it, share it. If you don't, you know, leave a bad review on iTunes and share it anyway. <laughs> I want the numbers. So, Tommy, thank you very much. Thank you, Earl. Thank you so much, man. And uh, thank you to Laura. 
Uh, I'm going to butcher her last name. Uh, I'll just say Laura C. Uh, you can see her Sunday nights, Sunset in La Brea, and thank her for putting this together because uh, me and Tommy, uh, I don't think I ever had his number. So, uh, <laughs> And like Tommy says, uh, he's a very hard man to find online. Uh, other than SoundCloud, he has no digital footprint. And, and negative reviews. <laughs> right. Well, I've got plenty of those for both of us. So uh, thank you to Tommy and Laura. She set it all up, and uh, there'll be a round three if you guys want it but only if i see the proper response see you guys later 